In public health circles, there's growing concern the CDC is being hamstrung in ways that are hurting the response to the coronavirus pandemic and could limit its tools in the future. Coming up, what powers are appropriate for the agency? This is Wednesday, April 20th. You're listening to WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon, I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, masking and mass transit. Subscription numbers are disappointing Netflix investors and the stock prices dropped. The company's plan to crack down on password sharing could backfire. That story ahead. We'll hear from the new editor and the chief of the Journal of the American Medical Association. Some 30 nations are taking part in mock cyber war exercises in the tiny Baltic nation of Estonia. While they're just an exercise, the threat emanating from Russia is very real. These stories and the numbers from Wall Street are coming up. It's 401. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi Singh. As many as 6,000 civilians reportedly were supposed to be on dozens of buses on their way out of the besieged Ukrainian city of Mariupol. But local officials are now saying only a fraction of that number has been evacuated. The country's deputy prime minister suggests the Russian military's bungled the logistics of allowing people to escape the war zone, leaving large numbers of women, children and elderly people stranded in a city where others could only escape by private car or die trying. Capturing the city on the Sea of Azov gives Russia a land bridge connecting pro-Moscow separatist territories in Ukraine and neighboring Russia to Crimea, which was illegally annexed in 2014. Ukrainian fighters are trying to hold on in Mariupol, but they say they need stronger weapons, a lot of them. A senior defense official says that 18 howitzers the U.S. recently promised Ukraine are now arriving in eastern Europe. NPR's Greg Myrie reports a massive artillery guns are seen as critical for looming battles in eastern Ukraine. U.S. flights carrying some of the howitzers arrived Tuesday in an unspecified country near Ukraine, the U.S. official said, adding that more were on the way. The U.S. is already training Ukrainians in a nearby country on how to use the 155-millimeter artillery guns. Ukraine says it desperately needs such heavy weaponry, and Russia is moving more of its own artillery into eastern Ukraine, where ongoing fighting is expected to escalate. The U.S. official said, quote, artillery is going to be critical in this fight. Also, the U.S. has provided spare aircraft parts that have allowed Ukraine to repair and return to service more than 20 of its own warplanes in the past three weeks. Greg Myrie, NPR News, Washington. The Department of Justice has announced charges against nearly two dozen defendants around the country for alleged COVID-19 health care fraud. NPR's Ryan Lucas reports the cases involve owners of medical businesses, doctors, marketers, and others. Federal prosecutors have brought cases against a total of 21 defendants in states across the nation, including California, Florida, New York, Tennessee, and Utah. The Justice Department says the alleged schemes resulted in more than $149 million in COVID-19-related false billings to federal programs or pandemic assistance programs. In one California case, for example, two owners of a clinical laboratory are accused of fraudulently billing tens of millions of dollars in false claims for laboratory tests. Another defendant allegedly offered fake COVID cures and fraudulent CDC vaccination cards. The head of the Justice Department's criminal division, Assistant Attorney General Kenneth Polite, says the agency will stop at nothing to root out COVID-19 related fraud. Ryan Lucas, NPR News, Washington. The Dow closes up nearly 250 points 
This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. The second man to have his life in prison sentence commuted by Governor Charlie Baker will be released. The Massachusetts Parole Board said today it's voted to grant parole to William Allen. WBUR's Deborah Becker has more. The parole board said because Allen has participated in so much prison rehabilitative programming, he is not a risk to release on parole. Allen was convicted of the 1994 murder of Purvis Bester in Brockton. Although another man admitted to fatally stabbing Bester during a robbery, Allen was convicted because he participated in the robbery. Allen is now 48. He'll live with his family in Brockton and plans to work at a local car dealership. He'll have to abide by a curfew and electronic monitoring and receive mental health support. He's expected to be released within a month. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Deborah Becker. Boston is launching a review of the city's affordable housing policy. The city's hired a firm to make recommendations by September. It will consider whether to increase the percentage of income-restricted units that are required in large residential developments. It will also look at whether to increase the fees commercial developers pay to help fund affordable housing. And the newspaper chain that owns the Patriot Ledger is ending traditional home delivery of the Quincy newspaper. Its print edition will instead be delivered through the mail starting next month. Northeastern University journalism professor Dan Kennedy says the decision fits into a wider pattern of cost-cutting by the owner, Gannett. Those kinds of moves are not a big deal, or they wouldn't be if they weren't accompanied by cuts in newsrooms and cuts in coverage. Unfortunately, Gannett is doing all of those things. Gannett says it's putting resources into meeting increased demand for digital content. It says editions of the Patriot Ledger will still arrive the same day that they're published. In the forecast, our lovely day turns into a clear but cold night tonight, all the way down to the mid-30s. Tomorrow, some sunshine early, then clouds should collect during the day. Highs could make it to about 60 degrees, still breezy tonight and tomorrow. 54 degrees now in Boston at 406. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Aspiration, working to help people combat climate change with a credit card that lets them plant a tree with every purchase. One card, zero carbon footprint. Aspiration.com slash credit. Aspiration Financial, LLC. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Daniel Estrin. And I'm Ari Shapiro. Face coverings quickly became optional this week on many commercial flights, municipal buses, and ride-hailing services. That's after a federal judge struck down the federal mask mandate for public transportation, which was issued by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. The CDC has faced many such challenges to its authority during the pandemic, to what it can and can't do in the name of public health. NPR health reporter Ping Huang joins us. Hi, Ping. Hey, Ari. Is this mask ruling likely to stand, given that the Justice Department says it may appeal? Well, it stands for now. You know, some cities, Milwaukee, New York, San Francisco, are still requiring masks on buses and trains, but it's no longer required on all transportation since the CDC's order was struck down Monday. Now, things haven't changed really from a public health perspective. The pandemic is still on, the coronavirus still spreads through the air, high quality masks do work, but the mandate was struck down by a Trump appointed judge who thought the CDC did not have the authority to make people wear masks, even if it might be good for public health. As you mentioned, the Justice Department disagrees with the ruling, says it's prepared to appeal if the CDC thinks the mandate's needed. So the ball is now in the CDC's court, and we're waiting to see how the agency proceeds. All right. If the question comes down to the authority that the CDC has, how clear is it what the CDC actually does have the power to do? 
Well, traditionally, the CDC makes the most use of its soft powers, using science and reason to persuade states and individuals to do the things for public health. But it also has hard powers, which go back to the 1944 Public Health Service Act. In the past, the agency has used these to quarantine individuals, and in this pandemic, CDC has been using them to issue broad orders on a range of things, from making travelers test a mask, to banning evictions and turning migrants away at the borders. Dr. Marty Setrin, the CDC's head of global migration and quarantine, told me last year that this is new territory for the CDC. This has been the largest and most expansive or inclusive use of regulatory authority, given the unprecedented nature of this pandemic threat. Now, no one from CDC would talk on the record with me today, as those orders are being challenged in court, and the mask ruling is just the latest defeat. What are some of the others? Well, the biggest blow came last August when the Supreme Court ruled the CDC exceeded its authority with its ban on evictions. Lindsay Wiley, a health law professor at UCLA, said that move was a bit of a stretch for CDC. A lot of the general public and a lot of federal judges feel like, you know, this isn't exactly what CDC's role should be. This is something state and local governments are doing, and it should really be left to them. Ultimately, Supreme Court said that CDC didn't have the authority to do it, and they struck it down. And that was one ruling on evictions, but law experts said that it had a ripple effect. Lower courts could use it to limit the CDC's powers too, and the judge in Florida did cite it this week as she canceled the travel mask mandate. So tell us about what this ripple effect could mean for public health if CDC powers are restricted more broadly. Well, health experts worry that limiting public health powers is short-sighted. Here's Wendy Parmit, a health law professor at Northeastern University. You can't assume that everything in the future is going to look either epidemiologically or politically like what we have seen. She says that the next pandemic could be very deadly to kids or one where Republicans want more restrictive measures than Democrats, as they did during the Ebola outbreak. Others say that the CDC needs to have flexible powers to deal with public health threats effectively, and it also needs at the same time to respect individuals and use clear evidence to support its actions. Ultimately, Congress might need to step in and spell out the agency's powers, but with the current political climate, it's not a clear path. And Pierce Ping Huang, thank you. Thanks, Ari. Earlier this week, Philadelphia became the first major city in America to reinstate an indoor mask mandate. But less than 24 hours later, its local public transportation agency opted out after a Florida judge overruled the CDC's federal transit mask mandate. For member station WHYY, Nina Feldman reports on the confusion created by the conflicting policies. Before Philadelphia's indoor mask mandate began earlier this week, Subway stations, cars, buses, and trolleys were some of the last remaining places you had to wear a mask. Now, it's reversed. You have to wear a mask in restaurants, offices, and schools, but not on the subway or the bus. For many riders, like Yusuf Muhammad, it's easier to ignore the new rules and keep on masking. It can be confusing, but you have to think about what's best for you. So what's best for me right now is to keep this mask on, even if they said take it off. But researchers say it's not fair to place the burden of safety solely on individuals. That's what institutions are supposed to be for. Ellen Peters studies decision-making and science communication at the University of Oregon. Here we have this really weird and confusing case where we have 
different people who are presumably maybe people we trust because they're coming from places of authority, but they're telling us different things. And so then the question is, who do you trust? Who do you follow? Peter says when posed with that choice, the natural outcome is for people to lose trust altogether. It's going to decrease our trust in those people who are telling us what we should do and shouldn't do. Lifting the mandate on public transit may cause people to forget to take a mask with them, making them even less likely to wear one in other indoor spaces. The city's early onset indoor mask mandate actually helped slow the spread of the virus. Jennifer Kolker is the health policy expert at Drexel University in Philadelphia. It definitely makes it all even muddier than it was, and it was pretty muddy before. (laughs) Philly's regional transit authority didn't have to lift its mandate. The judge ruled the CDC couldn't require masks on mass transit, but local authorities could still choose to make their own rules. In New York City, San Francisco, and Chicago, the regional transit authorities are keeping their mask requirements since buses and trains are often crowded. In Philly, transit officials say it would be harder for their employees to enforce the mask mandate without federal backing. Kolker says whether or not you agree with it, the city's mask mandate was designed to protect those at the highest risk for serious illness. Lifting the requirement on transit does the opposite. You know, people can decide if they want to go out for dinner or not shouldn't have to, but people can decide that, but people can't decide if they're going to take public transportation. So to me, um, making public transportation less safe by taking the mask mandate is really has the potential to hurt people who are more vulnerable. Route 17, serving South Philadelphia via 19th Street. On Tuesday afternoon, Elizabeth Black was waiting for the bus to take her home to South Philly after a doctor's appointment. She relies on public transportation and will continue wearing her mask. But she's concerned that lifting the mandate on buses will mean more people will go maskless. I don't feel safe (laughs) because sometimes some of them don't want me to have a mask on, you know. I tell you the truth, I really don't want them sitting next to them. That you're sitting together and everything, so. Asked if the fear was enough to consider another form of transit, she said like many, she doesn't have any other transportation options. For NPR News, I'm Nina Feldman in Philadelphia. Netflix, the streaming TV giant, has seen its stock price take a huge hit, dropping up to 37% earlier today after news that it lost 200,000 subscribers in the first quarter of this year. It's been 10 years since that last happened. Netflix CEO Reed Hastings told investors yesterday that the company might try to claw back some revenue by cracking down on the huge number of households that watch the service for free by borrowing passwords from subscribers. Remember, these are over 100 million households already are choosing to view Netflix. They love the service. We just got to get paid, you know, at some degree for them. Here to talk about what this means for Netflix and for the streaming TV world in general is NPR TV critic Eric Deggins. Hi, Eric. Hi. So 37% is a pretty significant stock drop. What is Netflix saying about why its numbers uh, were so bad and why did that affect its stock price so badly? 
Well, you know, for a company as big as Netflix, a drop of over 30% is massive. And in addition to their loss of 200,000 subscribers in the first quarter, they predicted they would lose 2 million more subscribers in the second quarter. So in in a letter to shareholders, Netflix cited increased competition from other streaming services, a slowdown in the adoption of smart TVs, those 100 million households that don't pay for Netflix, and outside factors like inflation and the war in Ukraine. I spoke to a couple of experts earlier today who said that Wall Street investors have been reconsidering how they valued streaming services since January when Netflix offered some pretty conservative predictions on its future performance. So it makes sense that it's underperforming now would produce this swift reaction. Okay, so we heard CEO Reed Hastings say that 100 million households are essentially getting Netflix for free by using shared passwords. So if Netflix manages to stop that, can it solve its problems? Well, I'm very skeptical. I mean, it's hard to convince consumers to pay for something that they've gotten for free over a long period of time. I mean, Netflix essentially plans to ask for a surcharge from subscribers who share passwords, but they're also trying to keep subscribers from dropping the service altogether. That's something that's uh, called churn. And um, they want to build up goodwill among their customers. So that's a serious challenge. That is, the drop in subscribers mean there are problems with Netflix's core strategy. And does it have impl- Applications for other streaming services. Well, Netflix is so big that when it sneezes, other streaming services catch a cold. <laughs> so the stock price on other media companies in the streaming game also went down a bit today, uh, including companies like Disney and Paramount Global. Um, Netflix executives said they would develop a, a cheaper version with advertisements, which is something they've resisted in the past. And that's important because the company has often pushed back on suggestions that it reconsider basic elements of its strategy, like releasing all episodes of original shows at once for binge watching, which makes it tougher for a series to stay in the public eye for very long. Now, uh, even though I've seen some critics take aim at their content, Elon Musk, for example, tweeted that, quote, the woke mind virus is making Netflix unwatchable, whatever that means. Uh, They've had big recent hits with like Squid Game and the second season of Bridgerton. So I think the real question is whether it's possible for any streaming service to grow at the levels necessary to satisfy Wall Street investors. And that's an answer we're probably going to see later this year. NPR's Eric Deggins, thanks. Thank you. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR checking business news. A Cambridge Life Sciences startup company is launched with the goal of finding new treatments for organ damage. Satellite Bio launched today, announced it's raised $100 million in funding. The company aims to produce bioengineered tissue implants that can repair, restore, or replace damaged organs. The company's working on the technology with researchers from MIT and from BU. Wall Street numbers are next. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Skylark Vocal Ensemble with Sub Rosa, a collaboration with composer Gregory Brown and author Dan Brown, April 27th through 30th, skylarkensemble.org. The Dow grew by 250 points today, nearly three-quarters of a percent, to finish at 35,161. S&P lost a small fraction to close at 44.59. The Nasdaq took a hit as Netflix stocks sank. Nasdaq was down about one and a quarter percent to close at 13,453. Marketplace has all the business news coming up at 6.30. It's 4.19. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Native Plant Trust. 
welcoming spring at Garden in the Woods in Framingham, now open, the beauty of native plants in a dramatic landscape. Information at nativeplanttrust.org. And Worcester Cultural Coalition, Music Worcester presents Ballet Hispanico at the Hanover Theater on April 22nd. More at worcesterculture.org. Blue skies out there right now should be clear overnight tonight as well, but cold all the way down to the mid-30s overnight tonight. For tomorrow, may have sunshine early in the day, but then overcast later in the day as clouds eventually collect. Highs could make it to about 60 degrees. 52 degrees now in Boston. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Fidelity Wealth Management, working to help create a comprehensive plan for a client's full financial picture. More at fidelity.com wealth. Investment minimums apply. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. And from DataIQ, a platform for everyday AI to help organizations make AI part of their daily business, designed to elevate people, teams, and companies. D-A-T-A-I-K-U dot com. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Daniel Estrin. And I'm Ari Shapiro. One of the most prestigious journals in medicine is about to get a new editor-in-chief. Dr. Kirsten Bibbins-Domingo studies cardiovascular disease and health equity at the University of California, San Francisco. When she officially starts her new job this summer, she will be the first person of color to lead JAMA, the Journal of the American Medical Association. Her predecessor was asked to resign after a controversy involving questions about structural racism in medicine. Dr. Bibbins-Domingo, welcome to All Things Considered. Thanks for having me. I want to briefly review the events that led to your predecessor's departure. Basically, in a podcast, two white doctors and editors for JAMA questioned whether structural racism exists in medicine. As a doctor, as a person of color, as someone who studies health equity, how did you feel watching that play out? Well, the issues um, regarding bias, racism in science and medicine are no different than the way they play out in the rest of society. And one of the challenges is that science and medicine, we oftentimes think of as being separate from these larger forces. And one of the most important things that I think we're faced with right now is for science and medicine to really understand uh, that those of us who practice medicine, those of us who conduct science, are shaped by the same sets of forces that shape the larger society. Um, The issues of bias, of racism, of sexism. And it's really important then if we're going to address these issues that do have an impact on our patients, that do have an impact on how scientific knowledge is generated and communicated, that we name these forces and that we work in every way possible to overcome them. And of course, this is all playing out during a pandemic that has had huge inequities in death and hospitalization across racial lines. Exactly right. Those of us who study the way in which health is sometimes distributed across lines uh, that really highlight the inequities in society, we're not surprised to see these things play out. Uh, But the pandemic really exposed them in a way that I think highlighted them for many. 
And I think we're at this extraordinary time where we see uh, these incredible uh, scientific advances in the vaccines and the treatments. But we also know that the access to these uh, scientific technologies, the access to, to the types of treatments, uh, and the ways in which many of our policies play out also reflect the types of inequities that we see in society. And there's never been a better time, I think, to highlight them, to think how we can in science and medicine work to improve the health of all of our communities and to do it in a trusted way because the other theme in this pandemic is the amount of mistrust people have about science and medicine and i think it's important for an, a really outstanding voice like jama and the jama network uh, to play a role in in helping to improve in this area can you identify one or two steps that you're really eager to take once you start the job that you think will will move jama in the right direction yeah, I think one of the things that I'm most excited by is to think about the voices that we oftentimes don't hear in scientific publications. I'm really excited to uh, make sure that the entire process that leads to publication, that we really expand the number of voices at the table. I think this is about publishing the best science, but also putting the best science in context for the larger challenges that we face in actually making sure that a scientific discovery actually leads to improvements in health for, for all communities uh, in the US. As you've said, this is a problem across science, across medicine. And so how does the work you're describing at one scientific journal fit into the larger ecosystem that you're talking about here? Right. I think that this is just one uh, journal, but it is a journal with a very both uh, prominent voice and a broad reach. And you see that the larger scientific enterprise, which includes the funders of science, the people who conduct science, the communities who are involved and participate in science, uh, the ways in which science is translated into medicine, all of those have their own parts that they need to play in this process. But I think movement in any one of those also uh, moves the larger enterprise in the direction we'd like to see it going. And do you feel like the goals you're describing are reflected across the field? Or is everyone kind of working in silos right now, and some are doing it better and faster than others, and some are just not doing it at all? To be frank, I would say that uh, it is unfortunate, and I say this as a physician myself, that um, we we go into medicine because we want to uh, serve our patients, and it's sometimes harder for us to acknowledge that the same biases that we have and that we are shaped by also influences how we care for our patients. So I would say medicine and science probably has been slower to address some of these issues. I think acknowledging that these forces exist should not come as a surprise to anyone, but rather is the first step to trying to make sure that science and medicine is something that really is working for the betterment of improving health for all. Dr. Kirsten Bibbins-Domingo is the incoming editor-in-chief of JAMA. Thank you for speaking with us. Thank you. To honor Poetry Month, we're hearing from the four finalists to become the 2022 National Youth Poet Laureate. Today, we meet Elizabeth Schwartz, the Northeast Regional Ambassador. I go by Liz. And I am 17. I'm from New York City. I'm from Staten Island. This poem is titled, At Least. In my dreams, I am King Midas. Specter, sinner, saint. I don't want to be another spectator. I swallow sunbeams. Slick lips revel in the golden glut of bustling streets. Here, they've unclenched their fists. Let the cobblestones clatter to the ground. 
This is the type of city that burns its maps. A firework is a fickle attempt to bottle miracles, but can't we say we tried? Can't we say the mosaics here were beautiful? I wrote about my experience looking within my community and sort of finding something I was in awe of and something that I wanted to change. And so in Staten Island, it's not really known for, it's not the most popular borough. And it has this stereotype of being really monolithic and that's not something that I experienced, but I also knew that gentrification was a huge issue and witnessing how my parents were treated, navigating being a first-generation Russian Jewish American and a lot of my culture um, is in this poem too. So I wanted to, to write with hope. And that's why I talk about King Midas and the touch of gold. And instead of bulldozing the bodegas for the celery juice station or the karate dojo for the soul cycle, swap the school desks for the stage, keep the children's playground, keep the Russian store, keep the Perigis and Bonchiki, don't sanitize our roots. America promises alimony, but we've rescheduled the court date until our pavement becomes the paradise we deserve. I just love the feeling of being able to make someone question their beliefs or to make someone feel hopeful. And just by performing a three to five minute poem, that is such a powerful thing to do and so grounding. They say we should draw solid, draw straight, draw the first number that comes to mind the gap between the pothole and the picket fence. In my dreams, I am King Midas, specter, sinner, saint. Someday what I touch will turn to gold. Together, we'll make these pavements paradise. Elizabeth Schwartz, a finalist for this year's National Youth Poet Laureate. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Next month, a Trump-era pandemic order used to expel people at the border is set to end. The Biden administration says it's ready. Clear skies to usher us into the evening. A cold breeze blowing tonight. Temperatures fall to the mid-30s. Tomorrow could rise to about 60 with clouds increasing during the day. Still windy. Then Friday should be gorgeous. Sunny, even milder with highs in the mid-60s. Stay informed with all that's happening in the news. Go to WBUR.org or ask your smart speaker to play WBUR. It's 4.30. WBUR supporters include Porter Square Books, celebrating Independent Bookstore Day in Boston and Cambridge on April 30th. Scavenger hunt, silent reading party, and more, portersquarebooks.com. Merrimack College, offering master's in education programs and credentials for teachers with a state-aligned curriculum. Online.merrimack.edu. And Sunbug Solar, offering solar and battery storage renewable energy solutions for your home or business. Learn how you can build a resilient future at sunbugsolar.com. A controversial asylum policy is set to end next month. Title 42 has failed. It was meant to keep COVID-19 out, but... In fact, at the southern border, it probably drove more COVID transmission than would have happened without it. I'm Kimberly Atkins-Store, The Legacy of Title 42. That's on point tonight at 7 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Windsor Johnston. 
The U.N. Secretary General says he's hoping to travel to Russia and Ukraine to push for a humanitarian truce amid the ongoing invasion. NPR's Michelle Kellerman reports on the new diplomatic effort to resolve the war. Secretary General Antonio Guterres has sent letters to the U.N. missions of Ukraine and Russia, according to his spokesperson, Stefan Dujaric. In these letters, the Secretary General asked President Vladimir Putin to receive him in Moscow and President Vladimir Zelensky to receive him in Kiev. Dujaric says he doesn't yet have a timeline for such a visit, but says the Secretary General calls this a time of great peril and consequence. More than 200 former U.N. officials wrote to Guterres recently, urging him to get more involved in resolving the conflict. They say Russia's invasion of Ukraine is undermining global order. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, the State Department. The head of the International Monetary Fund is warning that the Russian invasion of Ukraine is causing a massive set back for the world economy. IMF Managing Director Kristalina Georgieva says the ongoing conflict on top of the coronavirus pandemic is causing severe disruptions in global trade. We are facing a crisis upon a crisis, a war on top of a pandemic, and it's like being hit by another storm before we have recovered from the last one. Georgieva also called high inflation a clear and present danger to the world. Economic officials from around the world are gathered this week for their annual spring meeting. Stocks traded mixed on Wall Street today. The Dow Jones Industrial Average closed up 249 points. The Nasdaq Composite closed lower, down 166. The S&P 500 fell two points. This is NPR News in Washington. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Masks are no longer required on board Steamship Authority ferries or at terminals. The authority runs ferries between Cape Cod and the islands. An authority spokesman says it made the immediate change today because the Coast Guard will no longer enforce directives about mask usage on public transportation. A federal judge has refused to dismiss criminal charges against a former Natick Town meeting representative who was accused of taking part in the January 6th Capitol riot. Suzanne Anne Ianni has pleaded not guilty to disorderly conduct in entering a restricted area. She asked the court to dismiss the case, citing past protests at the Capitol when liberal protesters, she said, were not arrested. The judge rejected that argument, saying this case is different because Ianni entered the Capitol when it was closed to the public in a demonstration that attempted to disrupt a presidential transition. Massachusetts is making a push to hire more than 600 lifeguards for state-run pools and beaches this summer. WBR's Dave Faniff reports the state is offering incentives to attract new applicants. Department of Conservation and Recreation Interim Commissioner Stephanie Cooper says lifeguard pay will be among the highest in the country at $21 to $26 an hour. And the state's offering a $500 bonus for lifeguards that work through the end of the season. Cooper says DCR provides training plus first aid and CPR certification. One of the benefits of coming into our program is that you get this first responder training. And so you you have it for the job that you're carrying out with DCR, but then you also have it for the future. Cooper says pools and beaches will open in phases from Memorial Day into June. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Dave Faniff. It's 434.
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Fidelity Investments, reminding you it's never too early to start saving for your child's future. Learn more about a tax-advantaged 529 college savings account and how you can use the money to pay for qualified expenses at fidelity.com slash ufund. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC, member NYSE SIPC. Red Sox and Toronto Blue Jays meet at Fenway for Game 2 of their three-game series tonight. And in the forecast, should be a lovely night ahead. Moonlit skies, temperatures all the way down to the mid-30s, though. Tomorrow should make it to 60 degrees. Morning sunshine, then clouds gradually moving in. Still windy. Friday, sunny and warm, well into the 60s. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement to support digestive health, containing a probiotic strain developed by gastroenterologists with 20 years of research. More at alignprobiotics.com. And from C3AI. C3AI software enables organizations to use artificial intelligence at enterprise scale, solving previously unsolvable problems. C3AI is Enterprise AI. It's All Things Considered. From NPR News, I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Daniel Estrin. Some of President Biden's political allies are worried the White House doesn't have much of a plan for an expected influx of migrants at the southern border next month. That's when the administration is set to lift Title 42, the Trump-era pandemic order that's been used to expel people crossing the U.S.-Mexico border. Members of Congress are worried it could lead to a chaotic situation, and Democrats are worried there could be political costs. NPR's Deepa Shivaram is here to explain all this. Hi, Deepa. Hey there. So Republicans have been staunchly opposed to lifting Title 42. What about Democrats? So in the past few days, we've seen two more Democrats express some apprehension about lifting Title 42 next month. Hmm. That's Gary Peters, a Michigan senator who's chair of the Democratic Senatorial Campaign Committee, and Chris Coons, a Delaware senator who's a close Biden ally. And they joined several other Democrats in Congress and even some congressional candidates running for office this year who say that they want more of a plan. They want the Biden administration to reconsider or release more details on how to handle the expected influx of migrants once Title 42 expires. And there's even some Democrats who have joined forces with Republicans in the last few weeks to write up a bill that would delay lifting Title 42 by at least 60 more days, essentially trying to buy some time here. And one of the Democrats who joined onto that bill is Mark Kelly, a senator from Arizona who's up for re-election this year. So the thing to keep in mind in the background of all of this is the concerns that Democrats have about the midterm elections. Republicans have made immigration and the border a huge hot-button issue in the past elections and they'll do it again. And it definitely worries some vulnerable Democrats. Huh. So what has the White House said? The White House keeps pointing to a plan that the Department of Homeland Security released at the beginning of the month, but they're not adding anything more beyond that. And that plan from DHS says that the department is increasing their capacity to process new arrivals at the border, and they're beefing up law enforcement presence as well. Here's what White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki said this afternoon. We've proposed a plan, so that's a plan that is being implemented. Uh, In terms of any ideas to address immigration, including any delay of Title 42, that would require congressional action. 
And what they're also saying and being really adamant about is that Title 42 isn't technically an immigration policy. It's a public health directive. The administration says they're just following guidance set by the CDC. Okay, so the clock is ticking, right? There's about a month left until Title 42 is set to be lifted. So what what should we be watching for? Yeah, so in the next couple of weeks, I think the thing to keep an eye out for is that DHS has said that they're continuing to expand their resources on the border. And then when it comes to a legislative fix as an option, Congress could act if they want to. But in the meantime, you can expect members of Congress, both Republicans and Democrats, to be asking more questions. This DHS plan has been out for weeks now, but it's clearly not enough for them. And in the next week, you can see DHS Secretary Mayorkas is testifying in front of the House Judiciary Committee, which is known for its pretty heated partisan confrontations. And the top Republican on that committee is Jim Jordan of Ohio. He's already asking Mayorkas to come prepared for answers on the administration's plans once Title 42 expires. And then on the other side of things, Mayorkas is also likely to get questions from progressive Democrats who have been pressuring the Biden administration to lift Title 42 sooner. NPR's Deepa Shivaram. Thanks. Thank you. Just across the border from Russia, a war is taking place in a former Soviet republic. We're not talking about Ukraine here, but Estonia. The war is in cyberspace, part of a NATO-led annual drill. And this year, the stakes couldn't be higher. NPR cybersecurity correspondent Jenna McLaughlin sends us this report from the Estonian capital. Beryllia and Crimsonia are at war. The two islands disagree on politics, on who controls neighboring islands and their resources. One lashes out at the other in cyberspace. And as you can see on a screen there, about 20% of firewalls, for example, have uh, been attacked out of a two-day campaign. Mezjaker is the leader of the red team, Crimsonia, the bad guys in a cyber exercise held every year called Lock Shields. Normally, he's the head of a private cybersecurity company. Today, he's the adversary. A screen outside their war room shows the attacks they're launching. Right now, it's mostly attacks on energy companies and on the website of the Borrelia Institute of Virology. And the red team is just getting started. We always play the, like in boxing left and right hand, so we have a lot of very visible attacks. Usually these are website defacements and which are more of an annoyance, like drawing attention away to, to do the more uh, pre-positioning for the later attacks that the blue team most likely is not noticing yet. Everyone will notice when the attacks are really successful. For one thing, the giant screen imitating the power grid will turn red. Worst case, there's a box full of firecrackers for special effects. And yes, when it explodes, it means that system down, basically. That's exercise director Kerry Kunger. If the blue teams defend it, then it won't blow. The two imaginary island nations don't exist, of course. But Estonia has been running cyber drills since 2008, the year after Russia basically knocked the country offline in one of the first overt ideological cyber attacks on a nation. We look at how modern conflict is being conducted and we bring it into our exercise environment. The mastermind of the exercise, Adrian Venables, says he has been working on the plot of this week's cyber war for the last year, well before Russia invaded Ukraine. I monitor global Um, information warfare scenarios and real-world events and then we incorporate them into our exercises so they are absolutely real and are all inspired by by what we see in uh, in today's world. That includes hackers targeting brand new technology like 5G and a communication system for international banking. 
Plus says Venables a big emphasis on the power of social media. As the exercise has developed, um, we've introduced much more social media and news. So we have um, Twitter emulators, and we've introduced for the first time this year a, um, a TikTok-type emulator of short, short videos. Simulated TikTok and Twitter, or Birdle in this fictional country, might sound funny. But the tone of these games is notably serious. The real-life war in Ukraine is on everyone's minds. Of course it's more serious and, and if I'm looking at the faces behind the computers, they are serious, motivated and trying to do his best. That's Estonian defense minister Kale Lanet. He stopped by the exercise wearing a blue flower pin on his lapel in honor of Veterans Month, a symbol of spring renewal. He noted the war in Ukraine is a stark reminder that Russia, just over the border, could attack any of the countries participating in the exercise at any time. Something Estonia knows firsthand and is dead set on stopping. Jenna McLaughlin, NPR News, Tallinn, Estonia. Russia and Ukraine are responsible for nearly a third of the world's wheat supply. So as the war there wears on, hunger is worsening in countries far afield. On today's Consider This podcast, we'll take a look at how the war is disrupting the global food supply chain. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Anyone who's ever driven through New Jersey knows when it's time to fill the car, you can keep your seatbelt on. Pumping your own gas is forbidden. That's been the law for decades. Now New Jersey lawmakers are debating whether to end it. Gas station owners say it would help ease a labor shortage and bring prices down. But some drivers and politicians are skeptical. NPR's Laura Benshoff reports. At a small gas station in South Jersey, Shafin Poirier is sitting in her car. She says, sure, she knows how to pump her own gas. I do. Do I want to? No. From the driver's seat, Poirier waves her hand at the cold drizzle outside. Not getting out of my car, especially when it's raining. No, I like it just the way it is. New Jersey is one of two states where drivers are not allowed to pump their own gas. Oregon is the other one, although that state's ban is relaxed in rural areas. Now, a bill in the New Jersey legislature would allow gas stations to offer self-service. Bigger ones would still be required to have a full-service option between 8 a.m. and 8 p.m. Sal Rizalvado with the New Jersey Gasoline Convenience Store and Automotive Association says it would help fix the current labor shortage. I have members on busy highways that they have to close sometimes during the day for a couple hours because the shift ends. They don't have anybody to cover it. But Rizalvado knows his group faces opposition. For decades, New Jersey didn't raise its gas tax. Combined with a ban on pumping your own gas and a culture emerged. We have cheap gas and we don't have to pump it. That's changed. New Jersey now has some of the highest gas taxes in the country, according to the American Petroleum Institute. Drivers here now pay around the national average for gas. But the culture remains, says Rizalvado. And the bumper sticker and the T-shirts 
Jersey girls don't pump gas. And it became a source of pride. He claims if the self-serve law passes, gas stations could afford to lower prices at the pump, up to 23 cents a gallon. But so far, the Garden State's top politicians haven't embraced the bill, though they haven't completely ruled it out either. Here's Democratic Governor Phil Murphy at a press briefing after it was introduced. Listen, on self-service gas, that's been sort of a political third rail in New Jersey, uh, which I have historically not crossed. But he says he's open to anything that makes the Garden State more affordable. Senate President Nicholas Scateri said in a statement that he also doesn't support the bill, but he would reconsider if there's data to show the public is behind it and residents would save money. Outside a convenience store in Camden County, Kay Robinson is waiting for her husband after filling up. She says she doesn't support the bill because a lot of her friends worked at gas stations when they were younger. It was a good job to have. Like, I don't know how much they can pay now, but it was a good job to have back then to actually, you know, have a good amount of money in their pocket. So what are they, you know, what are they going to do now? But she's noticed many stations are down workers. And like most New Jerseyans in a recent poll, would support adding self-serve but only if full service is still available. So she doesn't support this bill. Yeah, I don't like it. That's my quote. <laughs> and Robinson says getting rid of full service stations would change how she feels about living in the Garden State. Laura Benshoff, NPR News. Ukrainian women who fled their country to Poland were safe from Russian warfare, but not from sexual predators who preyed on women needing car rides. A Polish woman set out to recruit women drivers. Hear that story on Morning Edition tomorrow. Just turn on your radio or ask your smart speaker to play NPR. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Checking sports. First pitch at Fenway Park tonight is 7-10 as the Sox host the Toronto Blue Jays for the middle game of a three-game set. Nick Pavetta will be on the mound. Sox will hold a pregame ceremony to honor the late Sox broadcaster and Hall of Famer Jerry Remy, who died of lung cancer last fall. It's 448. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the New England Innovation Academy, teaching design and entrepreneurship to day and boarding students in grades 6 through 12. Visit them at neiacademy.org. Office of the Massachusetts State Treasurer. Check to see if you have unclaimed money at findmassmoney.com. And Next Generation, performed by Boston Ballet School and Boston Ballet 2 with New England Conservatory Prep School, May 11th. Tickets at bostonballet.org. And join us tomorrow night at City Space for environmental reporter Miriam Wasser in conversation about the pitfalls and promise of offshore wind in New England. Free tickets at wbur.org events. Clear skies overnight tonight, cold in the mid-30s. Then for tomorrow, should have some sunshine in the morning, then clouds later, making it all the way to 60. This is WBUR. WBUR supporters include Innuendo, providing shading systems for businesses and homes. Their design team can help you find window treatments for light, heat, privacy, and glare issues. Innuendo Natick and Innuendo.com. Comcast Business, helping protect small businesses with Comcast Business Security Edge, powering possibilities. Comcast Business Internet required, restrictions apply. And Uncommon Feasts Catering Culinary Events, now reserving fall and 2023 dates in Boston, the North Shore, and Midcoast, Maine. Gather around. Let's feast. 
I'm Rupa Shanoi, WBUR's Morning Edition host. You know, in a city like Boston that's changing so fast, experience matters. Reporters Martha Biebinger, Anthony Brooks, and the entire WBUR newsroom are out in the community to take you behind the headlines so you can start your day in the know. Join me weekdays for Morning Edition starting at 5 a.m. on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Let's make mornings better. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Daniel Estrin. And I'm Ari Shapiro. The U.S. and Cuba will sit down for the first time in nearly four years to discuss migration between the two countries. The talks, scheduled for tomorrow in Washington, come as the number of Cuban migrants trying to enter the U.S. at the Mexican border and by sea into Florida has skyrocketed. NPR's Kerry Kahn reports. Migration talks used to occur between the U.S. and Cuba twice a year. President Trump ended that in 2018 and increased economic sanctions against the Caribbean island. Speaking at a migration conference in Panama today, U.S. Department of Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas says the U.S. is open to resuming those meetings. And that is a reflection of our commitment to legal orderly and humane pathways so individuals, including Cubans, do not take, for example, to the seas, which is an extraordinarily perilous uh, journey. U.S. officials say they picked up more than 1,200 Cubans trying to come by boat since last October and 80,000 trying to cross by land. That's more than double the number of Cubans U.S. officials encountered at the Mexico border in all of the previous fiscal year. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken, who led the delegation to Panama, says countries must work together to tackle the record levels of people on the move in the hemisphere. They say more money must be invested back in migrants' homes so they don't have to leave in the first place. Cuba's Deputy Foreign Minister, Josefina Vidal, told CNN in Havana yesterday that the U.S. may have that policy of investment and engagement with other countries, but not with Cuba. U.S. policies are making the situation worse, she says. Because in the case of Cuba, it's not, it's not just the consequence of the pandemic, it's, it's the consequences of the reinforcement of the policy of maximum pressure, economic pressure of the U.S., towards Cuba. President Biden has stuck with Trump's economic sanctions. Human rights activists say a recent crackdown by Cuban authorities on free speech is also contributing to the exodus. Kerry Khan, NPR News, Mexico City. The Ukrainian band Daha Bracha calls its sound ethno-chaos. Over the past decade, this Ukrainian folk-meets-punk group has brought its music to audiences around the world. NPR culture correspondent Anastasia Tsiolkas caught up with them recently as they kicked off a U.S. tour just weeks after Russia invaded their country. For years, Dacha Bracha has called themselves ambassadors of free Ukraine. Their shows have been punctuated with cries of stop Putin and no war. Now they hear those demands reflected and amplified around the world. This quartet's name means give-take in old Ukrainian, and that's exactly what they do. Cabaret, jazz, rock, and hip-hop are all part of the band's DNA. But they also explore all kinds of old Ukrainian folk styles, fed through the prism of the 21st century. Marko Halanevich, the group's only male musician, usually does the talking. 
During our conversation, the band's manager, Irina Gorban, interpreted. At the forefront of everyone's minds was the fact that this tour was happening in the midst of so much violence and heartache at home. Paul, of course, it's a big pain and it's a big tragedy for our country and we feel it every moment. Lots of people in Ukraine and around the world, they tell us that our best possibility to be useful and helpful is to be on stage and to show people our culture, music, and to tell our story and to tell the story of our country. The band has a highly honed sense of showmanship. Dacha Bracha was born at an experimental theater in Kyiv. When they first hit the international scene about a decade ago, they wore unforgettable tall angular hats and rich costumes that evoked an array of Ukrainian ethnic styles. Their music was fierce, exuberant, and understitched with humor. They were playful. But for this tour, the group had to take on a far more serious and urgent tone. The projected backdrops include videos of ravaged Ukraine. The comments from the stage are all about their country's plight. And there are collections at the door for a charity that aids Ukraine. Halinevich says the band hopes their audiences understand the need for that shift. Usually, of course, we had fun on the stage and we have this humor, but not in this program. Every minute people dying in your country, so it's really impossible to feel this joy of music. So that's why it's really complicated to find this balance between act of art and political expression, but we try to do it. Part of the Russian propaganda message has been that Ukraine doesn't really exist as an independent nation with its own cultures, history, and language. But that is a big part of the reason for Dacha Bracha's existence. Maria Sonovitsky is an ethnomusicologist who teaches at Bard College in New York. She's written about Dacha Bracha extensively. They show both that there's a very rich past in Ukraine, and they show this by bringing together a diversity of musical practices from different regions of Ukraine, from different ethnic groups within Ukraine. And they blend together these kind of fractured pasts into a beautiful whole that is not simple and it can't be simply reduced down to a story of one nation that is occupied by one people, but instead suggests a vibrant, if imperfect, democracy. Despite Dacha Bracha's ambivalence about touring under such complicated circumstances, Sonovitsky says it's still a channel for Americans to make a personal connection with Ukraine. No Ukrainian musician that I know would say that their songs are going to stand up against a nuclear bomb. Nobody's delusional enough to say anything like that. But if we're fighting against what may be an attempted genocide, the entire erasure of Ukraine, then I think keeping this culture in the front of our minds, learning more about it, listening is essential. As it turns out, the band had no reason to worry about the American audience's response. At the end of a recent show, the audience stood 
and some sang along as the band sang the Ukrainian national anthem. With that goal of connecting audiences to Ukraine, Dacha Bracha continues its U.S. tour this month and into May. Anastasia Tsilkas, NPR News, New York. Thank you for listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Drexel University, whose cooperative education program lets students explore a future career, build a resume, and earn a salary before graduation. More at drexel.edu slash ambition can't wait. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet. Learn more at nervivehealth.com. And from Fisher Investments, wealth management from dedicated advisors that tailor portfolios to each client's unique goals. More at fisherinvestments.com. Investing in securities involves the risk of loss. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Fly Homes, empowering homeowners to put the proceeds from the sale of their current home toward the down payment on their next one before selling. Learn more at flyhomes.com. And Peabody Essex Museum with Climate Action, Inspiring Change, featuring youth artists from New England. Now on view. For tickets and more information, visit pem.org. I'm On Point executive producer Jonathan Dyer, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Moscow takes the provocative step of test-launching an intercontinental ballistic missile. Meanwhile, Russia has begun military operations that are expected to lead to a massive offensive. Coming up, Ukraine has had weeks to prepare. Is it ready? Today is Wednesday, April 20th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, a lack of doctors and resources has made it tough to get medical care in the Gaza Strip. Not only we are, the number of the surgeons is just only two. This is not the only problem. You don't have all the instrumentation. You don't have all the resources. We'll follow one man's quest for heart surgery that could save his life. And a mixed reaction today from MBTA riders to the T's decision to drop its mask mandate. We'll hear why some say they'll keep their face covering on, and others say they're good showing off some skin. It's 5.01. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. Ukrainian officials say they support calls for a halt in fighting during what the country's Christians mark as Holy Week. NPR's Franco Ordonez reports on the United Nations' appeal for a four-day pause. U.N. Secretary General Antonio Guterres is asking for a cease in the fighting during the Orthodox Christians' Easter holiday and to allow for humanitarian aid and evacuations. The Secretary General called for a, quote, path to safety so that civilians can escape eastern areas where the fighting is most intense, including Mariupol. The Ukrainian Ministry of Foreign Affairs says it supports the call, stating that it seeks a peaceful and diplomatic resolution to the conflict. 
The United Nations estimates more than 12 million people in Ukraine need humanitarian assistance, with over one-third of those people located in Mariupol and the Donbass region. Franco Ordonez, NPR News, Poltava, Ukraine. Russia's military today announced the successful test of what it is calling a new intercontinental ballistic missile, a test hailed by Russian President Vladimir Putin, who said it should make the West, quote, think twice before taking aggressive action against Russia. The test of Russia's Sarmat missile comes at a time of soaring tensions with the West over Russia's brutal military operations against Ukraine. Russian leaders say that Sarmat ICBM can carry hypersonic glide vehicles along with other types of warheads. It was launched from a military facility in northern Russia with practice warheads reaching mock targets some 3,500 miles away. The Florida Department of Health and a new memo is recommending doctors in that state avoid providing gender-affirming care to transgender and gender-nonconforming minors. Danielle Pryor of member station WMFE has the story. The guidelines released by the Florida Department of Health today recommend doctors avoid prescribing social transitioning, puberty blockers, or gender-affirming surgery as treatment for transgender and gender-nonconforming kids. Josh Bell is the director of the LGBTQ nonprofit One Orlando Alliance. He says these guidelines aren't enforceable, but they do set a dangerous precedent. There will be people who will use this to keep our kids from identifying as who they are. The move comes just weeks after Governor Ron DeSantis and the Republican-majority legislature passed the Parental Rights in Education, or what opponents call the Don't Say Gay law. For NPR News, I'm Danielle Pryor in Orlando. Electric vehicle maker Tesla surged past Wall Street estimates for quarterly revenues after the company delivered record units at higher prices. Revenues rose to $18.76 billion in the first quarter. Tesla's been an exception since the pandemic outbreak, posting record deliveries and earnings for several quarters. A mix close on Wall Street, but the Dow was up 249 points. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Good afternoon. I'm Lisa Mullins. New research from Boston University finds former college football players are at higher risk than the general public of brain disorders. The study by BU's Chronic Traumatic Encephalopathy, or CTE, center found people who played the game in college were five times more likely to report being diagnosed with cognitive impairments. Senior researcher Robert Stern says the study adds to research that finds high rates of the degenerative brain disease, CTE, in former professional football players who have died. Given the fact that there are so many, many more former college players than there are former pros, the public health implications might be quite important. Stern says the study brings researchers one step closer to being able to diagnose CTE while someone is still alive. Boston police are increasing patrols in downtown Crossing. A department spokesman says the move comes after an uptick of reported violent crimes there. One happened this week when a woman was attacked by a group of young people. Five juveniles were arrested. Former Fall River Mayor Jaisal Correa is headed to prison Friday. Today, a federal appeals court rejected Correa's latest bid to stay out of prison while he appeals his fraud convictions. He was originally ordered to surrender back in December. A judge granted him several days during the coronavirus surge, several delays, that is. Correa was convicted of extorting potential marijuana vendors in Fall River and defrauding investors in his former company. And a new report projects that hotel revenue from business travel in Boston will be down almost 48 percent this year from pre-pandemic levels. 
Data analyzed by the American Hotel and Lodging Association and Calibri Labs show business travel revenue for the state as a whole is expected to be down 44 percent. The report finds that while leisure travel is rebounding, business travel would take significantly longer to recover. Our bright day is turning into a clear but cold night, all the way down to the mid-30s overnight tonight. Tomorrow, some sunshine early, and then turning overcast during the day. Highs could make it to about 60 degrees, 54 degrees in Boston at 5.06. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Fidelity Wealth Management, working to help create a comprehensive plan for a client's full financial picture. More at fidelity.com slash wealth. Investment minimums apply. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Daniel Estrin. And I'm Ari Shapiro. You may know what it's like to have your life suddenly interrupted by a health scare in the family. Finding the right doctor, the right hospital for specialized surgery. Now imagine doing that in a place that is largely cut off from the rest of the world, the Gaza Strip. This week, we're going to follow the story of one man in Gaza needing heart surgery. To do that, we have a special series from our co-host, Daniel Estrin. Hey, Daniel. Hi, Ari. I know you're going to be telling us the story of one man over several days, and I want to just begin with where the story is set in the Gaza Strip. What makes this place special, distinctive, unique? It's a tiny strip of land along the Mediterranean Sea. There are two million Palestinians who live there, and they have been virtually confined there for the last 15 years. Gaza was taken over by the militant group Hamas. It frequently launches attacks on Israel. So Israel imposed a blockade, and Egypt restricted its border too. And there's been conflict and war there every few years. That's been the case for the last 15 years. And that whole time, I've watched conditions deteriorate in Gaza, and especially healthcare. Now, it wasn't always like this. Gaza used to be this portal to the rest of the Mediterranean, especially during ancient times. There's even a theory that the word gauze comes from the word Gaza, uh, because it was made there centuries ago. But today, the modern health system in Gaza is in shambles. And the thing is, you do have well-equipped hospitals just a few hours drive away. In Jerusalem, in the West Bank, in Israel, they're all willing to accept Gaza patients. But whenever I'm in Gaza, I hear stories about people whose medical issues get worse. They lose their eyesight, they even die while they're waiting for permission to go to those hospitals. And so as you've watched this gap grow, as you've watched the healthcare system deteriorate in Gaza, what drew you to the story that you're about to share with us? I think what drew me is that when I report from Gaza, I go there every few months or so, even during the quiet times when there's no war and Gaza is not in the headlines. I'm based in the region for NPR. And whenever I'm there, I hear these stories, people struggling to get healthcare for themselves or for someone in their family. They're caught up in this web of conflict and suspicion and geopolitics. And it's been getting worse over the course of 15 years. If you're really sick, you are bound to get caught up in it. So I wanted to understand what it takes for someone in Gaza to get care. My colleague Anas Baba and I went to Gaza's main hospital, Shifa Hospital, late last year. We went looking for a patient we could follow. And we found one in the chaos of the waiting room. Wow, everyone is crowding here. Security guards are trying to control the crowds, clamoring to see a doctor. Can we ask someone what they're doing here? And in a sea of patients, we approach one man with a trim beard and a gaunt face. I haven't slept since yesterday, he says. His name is Yusuf Al-Kurd. 
He's 70 years old, and he's with his son Ibrahim. Why, why did you come here? Uh, he needs heart surgery. Three months. We are totally suffering for three months now. We just want him to be operated, that's all. Should we take his number in case... Uh... And that's how we meet Yusuf Al-Kurd. So let me tell you a little bit more about him. You can hear the evening prayers. All around Gaza, you hear mosque loudspeakers, which Yusuf Al-Kurd himself repaired. His son tells me his dad studied electrical engineering in Germany and returned home to a career fixing sound systems in Gaza. And he's the most famous technician in Gaza. He fixes the mixers, street vendors' microphones, mosques' microphones, schools' microphones. He did that for 30 years. He retired a few years ago, but trained his sons how to do the same work. And it was in their workshop that their dad had his first heart attack. Suddenly, uh, one day from nowhere, we just started to feel the, uh, the cardiac attack. He's a heavy smoker with diabetes. The doctor said he needed heart bypass surgery. This was in the spring of 2020. But with the COVID pandemic, his cardiologist was reassigned to a COVID ward, and Kurd himself was hesitant to get surgery. At the same time, he was afraid that there is COVID in the hospitals, and at the same time, an open heart. So he just postponed it. A year later, he developed another condition, ulcers on his legs. His sons rushed him back to the hospital. We went back to Dr. Muhammad Nassar, and I was totally shocked and surprised that Dr. Muhammad Nassar left Gaza forever. The head of cardiac surgery had left for Spain, following the path of many doctors fleeing Gaza's tough conditions over the last few years. A new doctor was put in charge. Hello, my name is uh, Dr. Seher Abghali. I'm uh, 40 years old. He was one of only four remaining cardiac surgeons in Gaza. But a doctor in his department died, actually of cardiac arrest. A month after that, another died of COVID. From four, we became three, and now we became two. Only two heart surgeons are left in Gaza for a population of two million. That's what Dr. Abu Ghali told me when we spoke earlier this year, and it's still the case. He thinks Gaza needs 10 surgeons. In the U.S. and Europe, the accepted ratio is about 55. Not only we, we are, the number of the surgeons is just only two. This is not the only problem. You don't have all the instrumentation. You don't have all the resources. Israel restricts the import of medical devices, like some X-ray equipment. It says Hamas could convert for military uses. And the Palestinian Authority in the West Bank doesn't give Gaza enough medical supplies. The reason for that might be that it's rivals for power with Hamas. So there are chronic shortages of supplies, like something called a cannula, the thin tube they place in your heart during bypass surgery. Dr. Abu Ghali says you're supposed to only use them once and throw them away. Here, every cannula is re-sterilized more than 100 times. <laughs> yes, this is true. This is Gaza. Because if you want to use it once and throw it out, you will not operate. You will never operate. Now, Israel does let doctors into Gaza to help a few days a month. But that's not enough. And with the blockade, Israel doesn't let out Palestinian doctors very much to get training. With the health system stretched so thin, 
it's too risky to do a lot of complex procedures in Gaza. Yusuf Al-Kurd needs coronary artery bypass surgery, and Dr. Abu Ghali can't do it. No, it's difficult to, to, to be done safely in Gaza. We need heart surgeons, we need vascular surgeons, we need uh, the instrumentations. So uh, it was a very high-risk uh, surgery for us. The doctor recommends he go to a better-equipped Palestinian hospital in the West Bank, a Palestinian territory not controlled by Hamas and not under blockade, less than two hours away. But when I meet him in that waiting room in the hospital, he's stuck, waiting for Israeli permission to get out to the West Bank. He's already scheduled the surgery a couple of times, but missed it each time. He didn't have the Israeli permit he needed for travel. The surgery is very urgent, his son says. If they just cancel it, I do believe that my father will pass away. He will die. He's afraid if his father doesn't get an Israeli travel permit for surgery, he might not live much longer. Daniel, I want to know how this story ends, and I know you're going to be telling it to us over the next few days, but um, this patient, Yusuf Al-Kurd, is in a really difficult situation at this moment. Yes. He needs heart surgery that is too complicated to do in Gaza. There are only two heart surgeons left in Gaza. The others have fled or have died. There is not enough medical equipment in Gaza to do it. And that's just one example of how Gaza has been deteriorating since Hamas took over and since Israel and much of the world have tried to isolate it. Now, Israel says this blockade is necessary to contain Hamas. Israel, the U.S., and the EU consider it a terrorist group, and it launches attacks on Israel. But two million Palestinians live there, and rights groups call it collective punishment. Are there any efforts to improve conditions, whether that's getting in more medical equipment or surgeons? Well, the World Health Organization has been calling for this for years. Uh, They want Israel to make it easier to bring in medical equipment, to allow doctors out of Gaza for training, and also for the Palestinian Authority to pay for more medicines and equipment to Gaza. But Hamas controls Gaza. Israel and Hamas are enemies. The entire conflict is just stuck and healthcare is one victim of that. Who pays for this medical care? Well, that's the thing. The Palestinian Authority pays for it. And because it's a government-provided healthcare system that Palestinians have, um, and they also pay for treatment outside of Gaza. So if someone needs surgery that they can't get in, in Gaza, uh, they pay for the care outside. The thing is, there's not a lot of money. Um, it comes from international donors, the U.S. and other countries, there's not a lot of it, so they have to be very selective in who they in who they send for care. So tell us what we're going to hear tomorrow. Next, we're going to look at how Kurd and his family are going to try to get him out of Gaza for surgery. It involves a lot of approvals. Palestinian officials need to make the first call, and they have to be especially selective because they don't have a lot of money for sending patients outside Gaza, and because Israel only allows out the most dire cases. So we're going to meet a Palestinian doctor who has some really difficult choices about what does and does not constitute an urgent case. When we were in his office, he got a call about another patient who's on the operating table in Gaza with a complication they can't treat. And the question is, should they take him out of Gaza or not? And here's what the doctor says. So he's not bleeding. He is not in active bleeding, some oozing from the side of the surgery. So it's not active bleeding. So it's not top emergency. We can wait and we... It's just an example of how selective it is and how high the stakes are 
for a man like Yusuf Al-Kurd who just needs to get heart surgery. Daniel Estern, looking forward to hearing the next installment of the story. Thank you. Thanks, Harry. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Coming up on WBUR, as All Things Considered, nearly every state is struggling to find qualified special education teachers. In many cases, schools will hire people who have not been fully trained. We'll hear about the effect on students. Checking business, Boston-based software maker PTC is buying a competitor. The company said today will purchase Intland software for $280 million. Intland is based in Germany and Hungary. PTC says the deal will expand its footprint in industries including automotive, life sciences, and defense. We'll hear about Wall Street numbers next. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Brookline Bank, where financial solutions are crafted to the needs of your business and delivered with a hands-on approach committed to your success. Learn more at brooklinebank.com and EF Gap Year, offering short-term summer programs abroad for students who want to get out and experience the world through hands-on learning. More at efgapyear.com. A mixed day on Wall Street. The Dow grew by 250 points today, nearly three-quarters of a percent. It finished the day at 35,161. S&P lost a small fraction to close at 4459. NASDAQ took a hit as Netflix stock sank. The NASDAQ was down about one and a quarter percent to finish at 13,453. It's 519. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Handel and Haydn Society, with Haydn's The Creation. Harry Christopher's final concerts as artistic director, April 29th and May 1st, handleandhyden.org. And Xfinity Internet, committed to delivering Internet service over a gig. Designed to power your devices while fitting your budget. More at xfinity.com gig. The winds are making it feel chillier than it is out there right now. Winds should continue tonight. Should be a cold night all the way down to the mid-30s. Tomorrow, some sunshine early, then clouds collect during the day. Highs just about 60. 54 degrees now. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Easy Cater, committed to solving food for today's workplaces, from sales meetings to employee lunches, online ordering from more than 80,000 restaurants, corporate food solutions at easycater.com. And from Raymond James, a firm focused on transforming lives, businesses, and communities through tailored wealth management, banking, and capital markets solutions. Learn more at RaymondJames.com. And from the Lemelson Foundation. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Daniel Estrin. And I'm Ari Shapiro. For years, most states have reported a shortage of special education teachers. Now, according to federal data, nearly every state is struggling to hire qualified educators. And when schools can't find a licensed teacher, they hire people who are willing to do the job but lack the training. For member station WFYI in Indianapolis, Lee Gaines reports on what that means for students. At the beginning of the school year, when Becky Ashcraft attended an open house at her daughter's school, she was surprised to find there was no teacher in her daughter's classroom, just a teacher's aide. And she explained that, well, we don't really have anybody um, for her, you know, for a teacher as of right now. And, and so I've just been, you know, checking in every month or so and no, still not an assigned teacher yet. I spoke to Ashcraft in early January. 
Her 12-year-old daughter attends a school for students with disabilities in Northwest Indiana. She doesn't speak, so without a teacher to talk to, it was hard for Ashcraft to know what her daughter did every day. I wonder what actually kind of education she was receiving. You know, I don't think, you know, just sending home some, a stack of worksheets that, you know, she really didn't do herself indicates that she was getting an education. The school would not confirm to NPR that Ashcraft's daughter had no teacher, but a spokesperson did say the school has used substitutes to provide special education services. This problem isn't unique to Indiana. Even before the pandemic, 44 states reported special education teacher shortages to the federal government. This school year, that number jumped to 48. To get by, schools in some states are hiring people who are willing to do the job but aren't fully trained. Indiana, California, Virginia, and Maryland are among the states that offer provisional licenses to help staff special education classrooms. The Band-Aid has been, let's put somebody who's breathing in front of kids and hope that everybody survives. Jacqueline Rodriguez is with the American Association of Colleges for Teacher Education. She says putting unprepared teachers in charge of classrooms is bad for students, even if those teachers are working toward their special education certification. This to me is like telling somebody that there is a dearth of doctors in neurosurgery. So we would love you to transition into the field by giving you the opportunity to operate on people while you're taking coursework at night. Would that make any sense to anybody else? Federal law requires that schools provide students with disabilities with fully licensed special educators. But when schools can't find qualified teachers, they're allowed to hire people who aren't fully qualified as long as they're pursuing their certification. First, there was clues. Remember, there was clues. Shalita West had zero teaching experience when she was hired to teach special education at a middle school in Elkhart, Indiana. It was scary. It was, it was scary. I've, I've never taught in a school at all. Her district is helping her work toward her certification by paying her tuition at a nearby university. In exchange, West has agreed to work for Elkhart Schools for five years. She says she would be lost in this job if it weren't for her university classes and her mentor, who helps with the meetings and complicated paperwork that comes with teaching students with disabilities. To be honest, I don't even know if I would would have stayed because I knew I know nothing. I knew nothing. I came in without any prior knowledge to what I needed to do on a daily basis. Administrator Lindsay Brander oversees the Elkhart program that supports West. We are able to recruit our own teachers and train them specifically for our students. She says it would be great if all the district special education teachers were fully qualified the first day they set foot in a classroom. But that's not reality. That's not going to happen until we fix some of these structural challenges that we have in education. This is how business is done now. This is life in education. Those structural issues include the high demands of the job and low teacher pay. Desiree Carver-Thomas, a researcher with the Learning Policy Institute, says that can lead to high turnover, especially in schools that serve mostly low-income children and students of color. And when special education teachers leave the profession, the cycle continues. Because when turnover rates are so high, uh, schools and districts, they're just trying to fill those positions with whomever they can find, often teachers who are not fully prepared. And the impact of that can go beyond what students are learning. 
there's a body of research looking at um, how students with disabilities are subjected to referral to law enforcement, to corporal punishment. That may be more common when teachers don't have the tools and the uh, experience and the training to respond appropriately. Carver Thomas says the solution to this problem isn't simple. Schools, colleges, and governments will have to work together to ensure students receive the education they're legally entitled to. In the meantime, schools and families have to make do. Halfway through the school year, parent Becky Ashcraft got a piece of good news. As of mid-January, her daughter now has a licensed special education teacher. But even if her teacher was unqualified, Ashcraft would be okay with that. You know, let them work towards that. That's wonderful. But, you know, I guess at this point, you know, we're happy to take anybody. Ashcraft says a special education teacher in training is still better than no teacher at all. For NPR News, I'm Lee Gaines in Indianapolis. And Lee is still with us to discuss her reporting on special education. Uh, Lee, hi there. Hey. Your reporting touches on a lot of the problems providing special education services right now. What did you learn about some of the solutions that are out there? So the Elkhart School System's Grow Your Own Special Education Teacher Program is an example of the most common solution I've found. There's a similar program in Wisconsin. School districts there have partnered with the University of Wisconsin-Madison to train more teachers. And Boston University and Boston Public Schools have a program aimed at helping teachers' aides become licensed special educators. But I do think it's worth noting that for Elkhart, this approach didn't entirely solve their problem. They still have 24 open positions right now. And then there's this rarer type of solution, paying special education teachers more money. That's something that schools in Atlanta, Detroit, and Hawaii are doing. My colleague Dylan Pierce-McCoy has reported that those districts have had an easier time filling special education jobs. If those training and, and payment policies were widespread, would that fix the special education teacher shortage? I really wish that was the case, but the experts I talked to say special education teachers also need better working conditions. Dylan and I spoke to a teacher who says her school was short-staffed and she was buried in paperwork. So she routinely worked 12-hour days. And we also talked to a teacher who worked with kids with behavioral challenges. She said she was repeatedly injured by her students and she didn't feel supported by school administrators. So all of these issues, pay, training, and working conditions will have to be addressed. That's Lee Gaines of member station WFYI in Indianapolis. Thanks for your reporting. Thank you. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Clear skies to usher us into the evening. A cold breeze overnight tonight. Temperatures falling to the mid-30s. Tomorrow could rise to about 60 with clouds increasing during the day, still on the windy side. Stay informed with all that is happening in the news. Go to WBUR.org or ask your smart speaker to play WBUR. 54 degrees in the Boston area at 530. News headlines are coming up next.
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Concord Museum. Experience history and art in the delightful new exhibit, Alive with Birds, William Brewster in Concord. ConcordMuseum.org. The Elliott Hotel and Uni Restaurant in Boston's Back Bay. Deluxe accommodations and personalized service where guests can relax in their one- and two-bedroom suites. ElliottHotel.com and Back Bay Life Science Advisors, Integrated Strategy Consulting, and Investment Banking for Biopharma, MedTech, and their investors. BBLSA.com. The news never sleeps, and we don't either. I'm Rupa Shanoi, WBUR's Morning Edition host. Our team is up all night, so we can tell you what happened while you were sleeping. Plus, we'll have interviews with local newsmakers and those hidden gems, the stories that bring a smile to your face. Join me weekdays for Morning Edition starting at 5 a.m. on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Let's make mornings better. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Windsor Johnston. The Biden administration is urging travelers to keep wearing masks on public transportation, including planes, despite a ruling from a federal judge that put a stop to the mandate. White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki says even though facial coverings are now a choice, the administration continues to stand by guidance from the CDC. We continue to recommend everyone wear masks on planes. What the president was speaking to is, of course, because we are not currently implementing the mask mandate, it is not a requirement. So people can choose even as we recommend it. The Justice Department says it's prepared to appeal the court ruling that struck down the mask requirement, but only if the CDC determines the mandate is still necessary to protect public health. French President Emmanuel Macron and far-right candidate Marine Le Pen are trying to mobilize voters as the second round of the French presidential election approaches. NPR's Eleanor Beardsley reports Macron is looking to attract left-wing voters. The 7 million voters who supported far-left candidate and third-place first-round finisher Jean-Luc Mélenchon could be key in Sunday's runoff. Macron has been courting them in the southern city of Marseille, where Mélenchon came in first. Macron dedicated a recent speech to ecology in an attempt to rally France's environmentally conscious youth. Some analysts say he is not credible because his government did not do enough on climate issues. Macron is leading Le Pen by about 10 points in the polls, a much tighter margin than five years ago when they competed in the last presidential election. Eleanor Beardsley, NPR News, Paris. Stocks traded mixed on Wall Street today. The Dow Jones Industrial Average was up 249 points. The Nasdaq down 166. The S&P 500 fell two points. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. The second man to have his life in prison sentence commuted by Governor Charlie Baker will be released. The Massachusetts Parole Board said today it has voted to grant parole to William Allen. WBUR's Deborah Becker has more. The parole board said because Allen has participated in so much prison rehabilitative programming, he is not a risk to release on parole. Allen was convicted of the 1994 murder of Purvis Bester in Brockton. Although another man admitted to fatally stabbing Bester during a robbery, Allen was convicted because he participated in the robbery. Allen is now 48. He'll live with his family in Brockton and plans to work at a local car dealership. He'll have to abide by a curfew and electronic monitoring and receive mental health support. He's expected to be released within a month. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Deborah Becker.
The newspaper chain that owns the Patriot Ledger is ending traditional home delivery of the Quincy newspaper. Its print edition will instead be delivered through the mail starting next month. Northeastern University journalism professor Dan Kennedy says the decision fits into a wider pattern of cost-cutting by the owner, Gannett. Those kinds of moves are not a big deal, or they wouldn't be if they weren't accompanied by cuts in newsrooms and cuts in coverage. Unfortunately, Gannett is doing all of those things. Gannett says it's putting resources into meeting increased demand for digital content. It says editions of the Patriot Ledger will still arrive the same day they're published. The Boston Symphony Orchestra is announcing its new season for September. The orchestra says the season will focus on musical perspectives of the tragedies of war and conflict. A spokesperson for the orchestra says the decision to focus on social and cultural issues of our time represents a new direction for a symphony season. It's 534. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge. Real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design. LaurenHolleran.com. And Boston Standard Company, helping to keep your home comfortable with plumbing, heating, cooling, and electrical solutions. Learn more at BostonStandardPlumbing.com. Boston has hired a firm to review the city's policy designed to increase affordable housing. The so-called inclusionary development policy requires residential developments of 10 or more units to create housing for those with restricted incomes. The study will look at increasing the amount of required affordable units from the current 13 percent of a development to at least 20 percent. The city is also considering hiking the fees commercial developers pay to help fund affordable housing. The firm is expected to report back in September. Red Sox and Blue Jays meet at Fenway for Game 2 of their three-game series. Nick Pavetta pitches for Boston. And Sox will hold a pregame ceremony to honor the late Sox broadcaster and Hall of Famer Jerry Remy, who died of lung cancer last fall. In the forecast, a cold breeze continuing to blow overnight tonight. Temperatures falling overnight to the mid-30s. Could rise to about 60 tomorrow with clouds increasing during the day. This is WBUR. It's 535. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system. Designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. And from Subaru, in partnership with its retailers and the National Forest Foundation, Subaru helped replant more than one million trees in areas devastated by wildfires. Love, it's what makes Subaru, Subaru. It's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Daniel Estrin. The United Nations says five million Ukrainians have now fled the war into other countries, creating a massive and rapidly developing refugee crisis. This comes on a day when Russian artillery and missiles battered Ukrainian defensive lines and cities in the east and south. NPR's Brian Mann joins us now from Odessa, Ukraine. Hi, Brian. Hi, Daniel. So five million refugees. Where are they going? The UN Refugee Agency says a lot of these folks are going into neighboring countries in Eastern Europe. That means Poland and Romania. Some are fleeing as far away as France and Britain and, of course, some coming to the U.S. and Canada According to the UN, more than 7 million people are also displaced within Ukraine, and they issued a warning, the United Nations did, saying these people, many of them women and children, are incredibly vulnerable right now to human trafficking and sex trafficking. Wow. 
So let's turn to Mariupol. This is the city where Ukrainian fighters and a lot of civilians are still surrounded by Russian forces, and Russia escalated its attacks there today. Give us an update. Yeah, the Ukrainians there refused to surrender. In social media posts and interviews, they described truly horrific conditions, injured soldiers, civilians with little medical care, few supplies. There are as many as 100,000 civilians still living in Mariupol, and uh, there was another effort to evacuate some of them today in buses. It appears some people did get out, but Ukrainian officials say, once again, the humanitarian corridor did not work. Wow. Now, U.S. officials are saying these intense strikes are actually a buildup to a more massive offensive by Russia. So is Ukraine prepared? Yeah, this is the big question right now. Ukrainian officials are putting a very bold face on it. Uh, the president of Vladimir, Vladimir Zelensky acknowledged in his latest address that this situation is very dangerous. Of course, Russia has one of the strongest militaries in the world. Uh, but then Zelensky said this. Zelensky says the way our armed forces are holding up shows the Ukrainian army deserved to be ranked higher than the Russian army. And we hear this kind of optimism everywhere in Ukraine. A spokesman for the military governor here in Odessa, who asked to be identified only by his first name, Eugene, told NPR that Ukraine might actually go on the offensive in the coming days. The thing is, it's all up to the Ukrainian armed forces now to recapture as many uh, ground as we can. And the best solution would be to recapture everything to stop this second offensive. But when I asked Eugene for details how the Ukrainian army has prepared itself to do that kind of fighting, here's how the exchange went. A lot of weapons are coming in to Ukraine. Are they reaching here? Are they getting out to the front lines? Is that working? Well, I can't tell that. I can't tell you that, he said. And the truth is, Ukrainian officials have been really secretive about their military situation. Experts I spoke to say it's hard to know exactly how prepared they really are. Ukrainians have been very tight-lipped. That's Bill Raggio. He's a senior fellow at the Foundation for the Defense of Democracies. He says it's understandable Ukraine's army is keeping its frontline situation secret as long as possible. It's a smart ploy by them. It's, it's you know, you don't want to disclose your weaknesses and losses while you're in the heat of battle, particularly when you're fighting against a, an enemy that has numerical and, and military and hardware superiority. Ukraine's optimism is based on some major victories, defending the capital, Kyiv, and pushing Russia back. That accomplishment boosted morale, especially for men like Alexander Slavsky. He's an employee I met in Odessa's public works department, who's now volunteering for the Territorial Defense Force. Yes, I have my weapon and my uniform, he says. I trained at the barracks. I know there are 100,000 like me across Ukraine. That kind of spirit means a lot in war. And a U.S. military official told NPR Today, many of these territorial defense fighters have had significant training and are ready to fight. Jim Dubik agrees. He's a senior fellow at the Institute for the Study of War. At the tactical level where the uh, fighting will be, I think that, that they will be relatively proficient. Dubik led the U.S. Army's effort to train Iraq's defense forces during the surge. He says his biggest concern now is whether Ukraine's army has enough logistical support and equipment. If there is one weak point, it's the Ukraine's ability to replace their battle losses in damaged and destroyed equipment. 
that completely depends upon the Allies. Now, Daniel, the experts I spoke to say Ukraine has been hardening its defensive positions in the east around the Donbass region actually for years. So none of them think Russia will break through easily, but this offensive is likely to be a much harder test for Ukraine's army. Hmm. Brian, it sounds like during this next phase of the war, a lot depends on weapons and equipment from the west. Has Ukraine gotten the help that it needs? Now, this is still a constant complaint from President Zelensky and other officials here. They say Ukraine's allies aren't providing the heavy gear, tanks, armored personnel carriers and airplanes that could really shift this war. A senior U.S. defense official did say today that multiple flights are now bringing howitzers and heavy artillery toward Ukraine. Those will arrive in the next few days. Uh, Training is underway to get Ukrainian soldiers ready to use them. Not clear how long before they can be deployed. NPR's Brian Mann in Odessa. Thanks for your reporting, Brian. Thank you. Fans of Taco Bell's Mexican pizza received good news this week. The food chain is bringing back the beloved menu item. You have the two like fried tortillas that are like kind of glued together with the beans or the meat, whatever you want to do. That's comedian and writer Rima Parikh, who wrote an essay professing her love for the Mexican pizza. The top, there's like the cheese, there's the tomatoes. They used to have green onions. They don't have those anymore. Of course, there's no such thing in true Mexican cuisine. But Taco Bell's creation has developed a strong following, especially among South Asian Americans. The disappointment ran deep when it was pulled from the menu about a year and a half ago. Taco Bell said it wanted to make way for new menu items. But Parikh was lost without her go-to that she'd even customized. I would swap out the meat with beans. um, And then a little bit later on, I started adding uh, potatoes and uh, nacho cheese sauce. That ability to customize the Mexican pizza is part of what made it popular among South Asian Americans. People's parents moved here in the 80s and the 90s. They didn't have like a lot of, you know, options for like fast food, especially if like they ate vegetarian, which, you know, you could do for a variety of reasons. Like you don't eat beef or like you're trying to eat halal. So Taco Bell, where you could swap the beef for beans, became the place to go. Chris Jagadar, who got hooked on the Mexican pizza as a kid, says the spicy flavors also appeal to Indian Americans. So I think in a lot of ways, it's kind of like as close as they can get to like Indian fast food um, while still being you know, obviously part of American culture. When Taco Bell removed the Mexican pizza from the menu, Jagadar started a change.org petition to bring it back. He says it spread like wildfire. I'm talking about like old Indian uncles and aunties like that are like sharing it in their groups. He got more than 170,000 signatures. And last week, to Jagadar's surprise, Taco Bell got in touch to thank him for stoking the movement and to tell him that the Mexican pizza hits menus again on May 19th. Both he and Parikh have the day marked on their calendars. Listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Riders on the MBTA are facing a choice today whether to wear a mask on board. The Transit Authority dropped its face covering requirement for riders and employees yesterday. The announcement came after a federal judge on Monday voided the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention's mask mandate for public transportation. WBUR's Daryl C. Murphy went out to talk with riders today to see if they think the T was right to follow suit. While some were maskless, many riders had their face coverings on this morning. 
Tindang of Dorchester lives with his family, which includes kids and his senior parents. Before entering downtown Crossing Station, the 24-year-old says he doesn't want to risk bringing the virus home. It's not me personally, but like I care about my family. Some people are very like uh, vulnerable to the uh, COVID uh, viruses. I'd rather take care of my family, you know. Elroy Brown of Dorchester says he rides the tea every day. He also plans to keep his mask with him. He's gotten used to it after wearing it for so long. You got people out here sneezing in public, not covering their mouths. I mean, so like, I'm gonna wear my mask. The CDC still advises that people wear masks in indoor public transportation settings. Public health experts have expressed concern about the end of the mandate, especially as new COVID cases are on the rise. The most recent wastewater data shows signs of the virus trending up, and state data shows hospitalizations ticking up as well. Shan So Lin is a managing director at Pharos Global Health Advisors in Boston. COVID is most definitely not over, um, and it's just really frustrating that still we are not able to pull together as a society to take care of each other. So Lin says she herself now has to rethink her plans for an upcoming vacation. For her, wearing a mask is not a big ask. I was in labor for four days and I wore a mask the whole time because I was supposed to. So like, if I can do that, you can wear a mask on the bus. You can do it. Some writers are in favor of ending the mask mandate, but keeping the masks. Leanne Syriac of Rhode Island is a professor at Suffolk University. She uses the tea as part of her work commute or her visits to the city. She plans to keep her mask, but she may not always wear it. I will continue to mask if it's a crowded car. If it's not crowded, then I then it's okay. Syriac says the mandate was dangerous for workers trying to uphold the policy. The MBTA police has reported several incidents of attacks on operators who asked riders to wear a mask. Too many people are causing problems, and I think it's not safe for some people who are trying to enforce it. I have mixed feelings, but um, for that reason, I think it's okay. The T still requires riders to wear masks on its paratransit service, The Ride. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Daryl C. Murphy. A new report from Tufts University's Center for State Policy Analysis urges state lawmakers to create legislation on the treatment of rideshare drivers before the questions posed on a November ballot initiative. If voters approve the initiative, it would classify those drivers as independent contractors, regardless of how many hours they work. It is backed by rideshare companies Uber and Lyft. As WBR's Stevie Chapman tells us, the report's author is calling the ballot initiative unusual. Voting yes on the initiative would give drivers baseline benefits, like a minimum pay rate and paid sick time. But it leaves out full-time employment benefits, like health insurance. The initiative comes on the heels of a lawsuit by Attorney General Maura Healey, which argues drivers should be regular employees under existing state law. Evan Horowitz is the report's author. He says a no vote is a bet on the lawsuit's outcome. There isn't a way to signal that you want to keep things the way they are. Either you want to introduce this new framework or you want to let the lawsuit play out. But either way, there's going to be change. Horowitz says legislative action could provide a thoughtful solution now. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Stevie Chapman. It's 549. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Celebrity Series, presenting Joshua Redman, Brad Meldow, Christian McBride, and Brian Blade, a mood swing reunion, April 24th at Symphony Hall. 
It's been beautiful and breezy today. Should be breezy and chilly overnight tonight in the mid-30s. Tomorrow making it all the way to 60. Should have morning sun tomorrow, then clouds moving in during the day. Still on the windy side. Then Friday should be sunny and warm well into the 60s. 54 degrees now at WBUR. You could try, you know, puberty blockers. You could try hormones. You could do nothing. And, you know, hope is mental health improves. We were sort of out of other options for the depression piece of it. So I think that was a big factor in deciding to go ahead and see if this, you know, would improve his emotional health. I'm Michael Barbaro. That's today on The Daily from The New York Times. Tonight at 8 on WBUR. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Daniel Estrin. And I'm Ari Shapiro. Sometimes Hollywood fixates on a theme. And right now, there are three serial biopics on streaming services that have something in common. In The Dropout on Hulu, Amanda Seyfried plays the disgraced head of Theranos. The world works in certain ways until a new great idea comes along and changes everything. On Showtime, super pumped, the battle for Uber tells the story of Travis Kalanick, played by Joseph Gordon-Levitt. We work harder, we work longer, and we work smarter. And Jared Leto plays the former head of WeWork on the Apple TV Plus show, We Crashed. This isn't a place for people to punch in and out. It's a place for people to uh, connect. So why the fascination with startup disruptors who proved a little too disruptive? Two of our in-house experts are here to explain. Bobby Allen covers tech and Linda Holmes hosts our Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast. Good to have you both here. Thanks, Ari. Hey, Ari. Okay, Bobby, for listeners who might not have put the puzzle pieces together, what do these three real-life stories have in common? Yeah, so um, Travis Kalanick, Adam Newman, and Elizabeth Holmes were all these larger-than-life tech executives who tried to, you know, disrupt age-old industries right? Taxi driving, office leasing, diagnostic blood testing. And, you know, all three had this kind of ferocious um, focus on growing their companies at all costs, uh, just as huge problems were sort of simmering under the surface. And, you know, Ari, eventually these problems were impossible to ignore, and it uh, set in motion that their dramatic falls from grace. These people were darlings until they weren't. Their companies were hot until they weren't. Linda, do the shows about them feel similar in tone? Like, is it all tragic Icarus figures flying too close to the sun? I wouldn't say that. I think you can tell from that clip that the WeWork show, Jared Leto is kind of pushing that portrayal just to the edge of becoming a little silly. That's the one that has, I would say, the most dark comedy. Um, The dropout about Theranos is the purest drama. And then in Super Pumped uh, about Uber, you kind of get more of a slick, satirical show that feels very influenced by Adam McKay and things like The Big Short. So they are actually all a bit different in tone in addition to, to kind of the differences in the underlying stories. Bobby, what actually happened to these people in real life for their mismanagement? Yeah, well, Kalanick was forced out at Uber in 2017, and that came after there was, you know, a big controversy over workplace culture at Uber. Lots of employees there said the company was rife with sexual harassment and discrimination that that Kalanick supposedly ignored. And he also, you know, very famously liked ignoring local laws when Uber pushed into new cities. And these days, uh, Kalanick is still around. He's, you know, much more low profile, but he is running a startup that is uh, renting out space to restaurants. Adam Newman, he resigned from WeWork back in 2019 after it became very clear that WeWork's business model had 
no serious long-term plan to make any money. Uh, and he, too, is staying out of the limelight these days. And uh, he seems to be something of a real estate investor, I guess, now. Hmm. And Elizabeth Holmes, she stands out among the three because, you know, Theranos was the only company that completely collapsed after a scandal. She's the only one who has been criminally charged. And as we know, a jury found her guilty of defrauding investors back in January. And now she's awaiting a sentencing date, and she could actually face some pretty hefty prison time. Okay, to turn back to the shows, Linda, my husband was obsessed with one of these three. I'm not going to tell you which one, but you've watched all of them. Do you think they're any good? Like, are they worth our time? Well, you know, I think they vary a lot. I think The Dropout is by far the most successful. Um, you know, the trick with these shows is that, as Bobby was just saying, you don't really get a super satisfying, like, schadenfreude kind of downfall for these people in most cases, like at least two of these people walked away rich and are still rich. Mm. It's not clear where Elizabeth Holmes is going to end up. So you have to find something else to make the show about. And I think The Dropout is the most successful in making the show kind of about Elizabeth Holmes. I think it also has um, the most interesting central performance from Amanda Seyfried. I brought you a little clip of her kind of doing one of Elizabeth Holmes's um, most famous speeches um, in a pep talk to her staff. I grew up spending summers with my uncle. I remember his love of crossword puzzles and trying to teach us to play football. I remember how much he loved the beach. I remember how much I loved him. He was diagnosed one day with skin cancer, which all of a sudden was brain cancer and in his bones. And if you have followed the story of Elizabeth Holmes in documentaries or whatever, you've heard her do that story. I think Seifert did a good job of capturing kind of how she talks without getting too fixated on a, an impersonation. But I think by far as television, the most successful is a dropout. All right. You guessed the one my husband is obsessed with. Um, <laughs> Bobby, how has the real life tech world responded to these scandals? Do they see it as an indictment of their culture broadly or a few bad apples? Like what's the response been? More in the few bad apples category, I'd say. I mean, after each of these scandals, Silicon Valley says, OK, fine, we're going to do some soul searching. Investors say we're going to do more homework before we write these enormous checks to companies promising to change the world. But, you know, Ari, that just never happens. I mean, the pattern is Silicon Valley distances itself from a disgraced CEO, they say, hey, that's not us. This person is an outlier. And then they turn around and make another very high-risk bet on a questionable startup that very well, you know, fail one day. Um, it's just kind of the nature of the game out here. Why do you think this is what Hollywood is focused on right now? I mean, is there something in the water that makes us want these kinds of stories at this moment? I personally think, you know, my friend, uh, I have to credit my friend Mike Katzoff, who's a producer on Pop Culture Happy Hour, who made the point to me that it feels very post-Trump in a, a sense that, you know, you feel like people are trying to figure out what makes people attracted to kind of these big bets on these big characters. I think that's hmm. a really interesting thesis that I, I liked as soon as I heard it. Um, and I think it's also kind of an example of Hollywood following itself. So you also have this push into true crime and docu-series and all that stuff that part of it is just once you get one thing, you tend to get a bunch of that thing. That's just kind of how television is. Yeah, you know, and I think, you know, the question of, you know, how in the world were these people able to pull this off is just something that like endlessly fascinates, right? 
And I think another thing to add to what Linda was just saying is, you know, it's Silicon Valley right now, just under pressure like never before. I think all of these stories just tap into a curiosity of like, what's really going on at these high-flying secretive tech companies? NPR's Bobby Allen covers tech, and Linda Holmes hosts the Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast. Thank you both for the insights. Thank you. Thanks, Ari. Support for All Tech Considered comes from C3AI. C3AI software enables organizations to use artificial intelligence at enterprise scale, solving previously unsolvable problems. C3AI is enterprise AI. And from Paycom, a tool for HR and payroll, designed for productivity, allowing employees to perform their HR and payroll tasks in a single software. Learn more at paycom.com radio. listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Indeed, committed to helping businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates. Businesses can invite candidates to apply, then schedule and conduct virtual interviews all in one place. Indeed.com NPR. And from UMA, a cloud-based phone service for businesses of any size, that comes with an automated virtual receptionist, video meetings, and mobility features to connect to customers and coworkers anywhere. More at OOMA.com. And from Proven Winners Color Choice, offering flowering shrubs and evergreens developed for gardens and landscapes nationwide. More at ProvenWinnersColorChoice.com NPR. The Red Sox and Toronto Blue Jays meet at Fenway for Game 2 of their three-game series tonight. Nick Pavetta pitches. Red Sox will pay tribute tonight to the late Jerry Remy's life and career with the club. The team will honor the former player, coach, and TV analyst with a ceremony before tonight's game at Fenway. Remy died of lung cancer last October. Remy broadcast Sox games for more than three decades and played second base for the Sox from 1978 to 1984. The tribute begins at 6.30 tonight. At the Garden, it's Game 2 of the first-round playoff series with the Celts and Brooklyn Nets. Boston picked up Game 1. This is WBUR. It's 5.59. I'm reporter Deborah Becker, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. The ruling that struck down the travel mask mandate is leading to renewed debate over how much authority the CDC should have. A lot of the general public and a lot of federal judges feel like this isn't exactly what the CDC's role should be. This is something state and local governments are doing and it should really be left to them. 
It's Wednesday, April 20th. I'm Lisa Mullins. We'll hear from public health experts on the CDC's powers. We'll also hear from the new editor-in-chief of JAMA, one of the most prestigious journals in medicine. The National Portrait Gallery in Washington, D.C. is marking the 50th anniversary of the Watergate break-in with an exhibit of 25 objects featuring prominent people involved in the scandal. And to celebrate National Poetry Month, we're hearing from poets competing to be the next National Youth Poet Laureate. Today, New York City's Laureate. It's 6.01 News Headlines and the numbers from Wall Street are coming up next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. At least 5 million Ukrainians have left the country since Russia's full-scale invasion. That's according to the U.N.'s refugee agency. NPR's Dave Blanchard has more. The majority of the refugees, around 2.8 million people, have entered Poland, though the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees estimates many of them have continued on to other European countries. The pace of Ukrainians leaving has slowed since the first few weeks of the full-scale invasion. In fact, on a few days recently, the Polish border guard reported more people made the trip into Ukraine from Poland than the reverse. That's likely in part due to Ukrainians wanting to return home for Orthodox Easter this Sunday. The refugee numbers alone don't tell the full story. The UN says the number of people internally displaced in Ukraine is even larger, 7 million. Dave Blanchard, NPR News, Kyiv, Ukraine. Thousands of older oil and gas wells that contribute just a fraction of the nation's energy are to blame for a large portion of the industry's climate-warming methane pollution. That's according to a new study. Reporter Reed Frazier says the study comes as the Biden administration tries to clamp down on the oil and gas industry's carbon footprint. Scientists with the Environmental Defense Fund found over a half million so-called low-producing wells account for more than half of the oil and gas sector's emissions of methane, a potent greenhouse gas. Those wells produce just 6 percent of the country's oil and gas. Lead author Mark O'Mara said unmonitored equipment can be the cause. A lot of, you know, old wells that suffer from what I call prolonged lack of attention from their operators. The Biden administration proposed stronger methane regulations for higher production wells and says it plans to address lower producing ones later this year, a move some oil and gas companies oppose. For NPR News, I'm Reed Frazier in Pittsburgh. The heads of the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank say surging inflation and higher interest rates are squeezing the world's poorest economies. World Bank President David Malpass speaking at a press conference today said there's a huge buildup of debt, especially in poor nations. Stocks ended mixed today. NPR Scott Horsley has more. The Nasdaq index was weighed down by a sharp drop in Netflix shares. Stock in the streaming service lost more than a third of its value after Netflix reported a quarterly drop in subscribers. The company is considering a crackdown on password sharing, as well as a low-cost option for subscribers who don't mind sitting through commercials. Blue chip stocks fared better. Procter & Gamble shares rose more than 2.5% after the consumer products giant boosted its annual sales forecast. Sales of existing homes declined in March for the second consecutive month, but the average price of homes sold hit a record high, topping $375,000. That's up 15% from a year ago. Scott Horsley, NPR News, Washington. You're listening to NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Good evening, I'm Lisa Mullins. A federal judge has refused to dismiss criminal charges against a former Natick Town Meeting representative accused of taking part in the January 6th Capitol riot. Susanna Ayani has pleaded not guilty to disorderly conduct and entering a restricted area. 
She asked the court to dismiss the case, citing past protests at the Capitol, in which she said liberal protesters were not arrested. The judge rejected that argument, saying Ayani entered the Capitol when it was closed to the public in a demonstration that attempted to disrupt a presidential transition. Investigators looking into an accident on the MBTA's red line that killed a rider have spent time assessing equipment. A spokesman for the National Transportation Safety Board said today investigators have conducted an examination of the doors and other mechanical parts of the train. Robinson Lallan was dragged to his death at the Broadway T station uh, April 10th after he got caught in a red line car door as it closed. He says a preliminary, the Transportation Board says a preliminary report from the investigation may be available in a couple of weeks. And Massachusetts is making a push to hire more than 600 lifeguards for state-run pools and beaches this summer. WBR's Dave Faniff reports the state is offering some incentives to attract new applicants. Department of Conservation and Recreation Interim Commissioner Stephanie Cooper says lifeguard pay will be among the highest in the country at $21 to $26 an hour. And the state's offering a $500 bonus for lifeguards that work through the end of the season. Cooper says DCR provides training plus first aid and CPR certification. One of the benefits of coming into our program is that you get this first responder training. And so you you have it for the job that you're carrying out with DCR, but then you also have it for the future. Cooper says pools and beaches will open in phases from Memorial Day into June. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Dave Faniff. Breezy and beautiful this evening. Breezy and cold overnight tonight, down in the mid-20s. Tomorrow, making it all the way to 60. Should have morning sunshine, then clouds increasing during the day. This is WBUR at 6.06. WBUR supporters include the George Gund Foundation, working to make Cleveland and Northeast Ohio more globally competitive, livable, sustainable, and just. More information available at gundfdn.org. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Daniel Estrin. And I'm Ari Shapiro. Face coverings quickly became optional this week on many commercial flights, municipal buses, and ride-hailing services. That's after a federal judge struck down the federal mask mandate for public transportation, which was issued by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. The CDC has faced many such challenges to its authority during the pandemic, to what it can and can't do in the name of public health. NPR health reporter Ping Huang joins us. Hi, Ping. Hey, Ari. Is this mask ruling likely to stand, given that the Justice Department says it may appeal? Well, it stands for now. You know, some cities, Milwaukee, New York, San Francisco, are still requiring masks on buses and trains, but it's no longer required on all transportation since the CDC's order was struck down Monday. Now, things haven't changed really from a public health perspective. The pandemic is still on, the coronavirus still spreads through the air, high-quality masks do work. But the mandate was struck down by a Trump-appointed judge who thought the CDC did not have the authority to make people wear masks, even if it might be good for public health. As you mentioned, the Justice Department disagrees with the ruling, says it's prepared to appeal if the CDC thinks the mandate's needed. So the ball is now in the CDC's court, and we're waiting to see how the agency proceeds. All right, if the question comes down to the authority that the CDC has, how clear is it what the CDC actually does have the power to do? 
Well, traditionally, the CDC makes the most use of its soft powers, using science and reason to persuade states and individuals to do the things for public health. But it also has hard powers, which go back to the 1944 Public Health Service Act. In the past, the agency has used these to quarantine individuals, and in this pandemic, CDC has been using them to issue broad orders on a range of things, from making travelers test a mask, to banning evictions and turning migrants away at the borders. Dr. Marty Setrin, the CDC's head of global migration and quarantine, told me last year that this is new territory for the CDC. This has been the largest and most expansive or inclusive use of regulatory authority, given the unprecedented nature of this pandemic threat. Now, no one from CDC would talk on the record with me today, as those orders are being challenged in court, and the mask ruling is just the latest defeat. What are some of the others? Well, the biggest blow came last August when the Supreme Court ruled the CDC exceeded its authority with its ban on evictions. Lindsay Wiley, a health law professor at UCLA, said that move was a bit of a stretch for CDC. A lot of the general public and a lot of federal judges feel like, you know, this isn't exactly what CDC's role should be. This is something state and local governments are doing, and it should really be left to them. Ultimately, Supreme Court said that CDC didn't have the authority to do it, and they struck it down. And that was one ruling on evictions, but law experts said that it had a ripple effect. Lower courts could use it to limit the CDC's powers too, and the judge in Florida did cite it this week as she canceled the travel mask mandate. So tell us about what this ripple effect could mean for public health if CDC powers are restricted more broadly. Well, health experts worry that limiting public health powers is short-sighted. Here's Wendy Parmit, a health law professor at Northeastern University. You can't assume that everything in the future is going to look either epidemiologically or politically like what we have seen. She says that the next pandemic could be very deadly to kids or one where Republicans want more restrictive measures than Democrats, as they did during the Ebola outbreak. Others say that the CDC needs to have flexible powers to deal with public health threats effectively, and it also needs at the same time to respect individuals and use clear evidence to support its actions. Ultimately, Congress might need to step in and spell out the agency's powers, but with the current political climate, it's not a clear path. And Paris Ping Huang, thank you. Thanks, Ari. Earlier this week, Philadelphia became the first major city in America to reinstate an indoor mask mandate. But less than 24 hours later, its local public transportation agency opted out after a Florida judge overruled the CDC's federal transit mask mandate. For member station WHYY, Nina Feldman reports on the confusion created by the conflicting policies. Before Philadelphia's indoor mask mandate began earlier this week, subway stations, cars, buses, and trolleys were some of the last remaining places you had to wear a mask. Now it's reversed. You have to wear a mask in restaurants, offices, and schools, but not on the subway or the bus. For many riders, like Yusef Mohammed, it's easier to ignore the new rules and keep on masking. It can be confusing, but you have to think about what's best for you. So what's best for me right now is to keep this mask on, even if they said take it off. But researchers say it's not fair to place the burden of safety solely on individuals. That's what institutions are supposed to be for. Ellen Peters studies decision-making and science communication at the University of Oregon. Here we have this really weird and confusing case where we have 
different people who are presumably maybe people we trust because they're coming from places of authority, but they're telling us different things. And so then the question is, who do you trust? Who do you follow? Peter says when posed with that choice, the natural outcome is for people to lose trust altogether. It's going to decrease our trust in those people who are telling us what we should do and shouldn't do. Lifting the mandate on public transit may cause people to forget to take a mask with them, making them even less likely to wear one in other indoor spaces. The city's early onset indoor mask mandate actually helped slow the spread of the virus. Jennifer Kolker is the health policy expert at Drexel University in Philadelphia. It definitely makes it all even muddier than it was, and it was pretty muddy before. <laughs> Philly's regional transit authority didn't have to lift its mandate. The judge ruled the CDC couldn't require masks on mass transit, but local authorities could still choose to make their own rules. In New York City, San Francisco, and Chicago, the regional transit authorities are keeping their mask requirements since buses and trains are often crowded. In Philly, transit officials say it would be harder for their employees to enforce the mask mandate without federal backing. Kolker says whether or not you agree with it, the city's mask mandate was designed to protect those at the highest risk for serious illness. Lifting the requirement on transit does the opposite. You know, people can decide if they want to go out for dinner or not. Shouldn't have to, but people can decide that, but people can't decide if they're going to take public transportation. So to me, um, making public transportation less safe by taking the mask mandate is really has the potential to hurt people who are more vulnerable. Route 17, serving South Philadelphia via 19th Street. On Tuesday afternoon, Elizabeth Black was waiting for the bus to take her home to South Philly after a doctor's appointment. She relies on public transportation and will continue wearing her mask. But she's concerned that lifting the mandate on buses will mean more people will go maskless. I don't feel safe <laughs> because sometimes some of them don't want me to have a mask on, you know. I tell you the truth, I really don't want them sitting next to them. That you're sitting together and everything, so. Asked if the fear was enough to consider another form of transit, she said like many, she doesn't have any other transportation options. For NPR News, I'm Nina Feldman in Philadelphia. The 50th anniversary of Watergate is approaching. In June of 1972, five men were arrested for breaking into the Democratic National Committee offices at the Watergate complex, the first step in one of the worst political scandals in the history of the United States. Looking ahead, the National Portrait Gallery in Washington, D.C. is commemorating those watershed events with an exhibition. NPR's Miranda Merziargos has more. The word Watergate has long been used to refer to cover-ups, burglaries, and abuse of office as the political scandal of the 70s that brought down President Nixon caught the attention of the news media, artists, Hollywood, and the general public alike. In this new exhibition, acting senior historian at the National Portrait Gallery, Kate Clark-Lamay, wanted to address the well-known history through a different, more visual lens. In my opinion, good art is timeless. So I wanted this show to focus on the close relationship between the media and the artists and start to interpret that impact onto these events. The news media uncovered the abuse of power and helped the public dissect the crisis as it was happening. Time magazine alone devoted more than 40 of their covers to the scandal, 12 of which are part of the gallery's exhibition. And the show has a little bit of everything. There are pictures of the most prominent figures, President Nixon and White House counsel John Dean, for example, 
but also portraits of those whose stories unfolded in the periphery of the scandal, like Martha Mitchell, wife of then-Attorney General John Mitchell. Martha's portrait is a colorful, eye-catching painting by artist Jan DeRuth, originally published in Time magazine in their November 1970 special, The Wives of Washington. So imagine being a socialite. You know, she's Arkansas-born, and she's featured in Time magazine. Okay, great, except she's featured for being a wife. Women's potential was so limited in the mid-century. So adding the portrait to the collection allowed Clark LeMay to explore Martha's story as a woman who was an essential yet sidelined part of the scandal. Martha's close proximity to John allowed her to gain knowledge of a lot of the scandal's secrets, and she was known for indiscreet comments to journalists like Helen Thomas of UPI. But knowing too much had its consequences. She was kidnapped, sedated, drugged. They called her crazy. They used that age-old reference for women as hysterical. So that was something I really wanted to make sure was front and center in this show, um, to correct that story, to make sure that people know about her story, appreciate really what she was. She was a whistleblower. Martha's husband, John Mitchell, was convicted on charges that he conspired to cover up the break-in. He is depicted in the exhibition by Italian-born artist George Giusti, who drew the face of the former attorney general on a bleach bottle. In the mid-century, you know, caricature artists were looking for any kind of materials that they could that would make a statement in and of themselves. And so the humor behind it is probably what Goosey was going for. LeMay Clark says humor makes for the perfect vehicle to understand history. So the collection has several cartoons and forms of political parody, such as a statue of President Nixon and his national security advisor, Henry Kissinger, made in the style of Mount Rushmore, and a wanted poster with images of all the men involved in the scandal. When curating the collection, LeMay Clark was thinking about the millions of diverse visitors the Portrait Gallery receives annually, mainly those who might not be familiar with those involved in Watergate. I think it's useful. The art helps us understand a little bit of that complexity, but, it, but in a shortcut way. Watergate Portraiture and Intrigue is on view until September 5th. For NPR News, I'm Miranda Mazariegos. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR. Some news just in this evening. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention says it has asked the Justice Department to appeal the federal court decision earlier this week that lifted the nationwide mask mandate on planes, buses, and trains. The CDC says it believes the mandate was lawful and within its authority to protect public health. Monday, a judge ruled the CDC exceeded its authority and failed to follow proper rulemaking procedures. Wall Street numbers are coming up next. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Bicon Dental Implants, offering patients a same-day solution for missing teeth, often avoiding surgical bone grafting procedures. 617-524-3900. And Cityside Subaru on Route 60 in Belmont, where the Love Spring event is underway, featuring the all-wheel drive Subaru Crosstrek. CitysideSubaru.com. The Dow grew by 250 points today, nearly three-quarters of a percent, to finish at 35,161. S&P lost a small fraction to close at 44.59. The Nasdaq took a hit as Netflix stocks sank. The Nasdaq closed down about one and a quarter percent to finish at 13,453. All the details coming up on Marketplace at 6.30. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Xfinity Internet. 
committed to delivering internet service over a gig. Designed to power your devices while fitting your budget. More at Xfinity.com gig. Add MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software, sponsor of Growing Healthy Futures with Greater Boston Food Bank. MathWorks.com GBFB. Nick Pavetta pitches tonight as the Red Sox and Toronto Blue Jays meet at Fenway for Game 2 of their three-game series. At the Garden, it's Game 2 of the first-round playoff series with the Celts and Brooklyn Nets. Boston picked up Game 1. And some of the best ice skaters in the world will come to the Boston area this fall. U.S. Figure Skating says this year's Skate America competition will take place in October at the Skating Club of Boston's new rink in Norwood. It'll be the first competition in the International Skating Union's annual Grand Prix. Last time Skate America was held in Massachusetts was 26 years ago. It's 620. WBUR supporters include AVFX, offering sophisticated event services in person, online, or some combination of the two, bringing them to life at avfx.com events. The Elliott Hotel and Uni Restaurant in Boston's Back Bay. Deluxe accommodations and personalized service where guests can relax in their one- and two-bedroom suites. ElliottHotel.com. And Clark, where you can experience Sub-Zero and Wolf appliances with a personal consultant to make informed selections for your home. Details at ClarkLiving.com. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Daniel Estrin. And I'm Ari Shapiro. One of the most prestigious journals in medicine is about to get a new editor-in-chief. Dr. Kirsten Bibbins-Domingo studies cardiovascular disease and health equity at the University of California, San Francisco. When she officially starts her new job this summer, she will be the first person of color to lead JAMA, the Journal of the American Medical Association. Her predecessor was asked to resign after a controversy involving questions about structural racism in medicine. Dr. Bimmons-Domingo, welcome to All Things Considered. Thanks for having me. I want to briefly review the events that led to your predecessor's departure. Basically, in a podcast, two white doctors and editors for JAMA questioned whether structural racism exists in medicine. As a doctor, as a person of color, as someone who studies health equity, how did you feel watching that play out? Well, the issues um, regarding bias, racism in science and medicine are no different than the way they play out in the rest of society. And one of the challenges is that science and medicine, we oftentimes think of as being separate from these larger forces. And one of the most important things that I think we're faced with right now is for science and medicine to really understand uh, that those of us who practice medicine, those of us who conduct science, um, are shaped by the same sets of forces that shape the larger society. Um, the issues of bias, of racism, of sexism. And it's really important then if we're going to address these issues that do have an impact on our patients, that do have an impact on how scientific knowledge is generated and communicated, that we name these forces and that we work in every way possible to overcome them. And of course, this is all playing out during a pandemic that has had huge inequities in death and hospitalization across racial lines. Exactly right. Those of us who study the way in which health is sometimes distributed across lines uh, that really highlight the inequities in society, we're not surprised to see these things play out. Uh, but the pandemic really exposed them in a way that I think highlighted them for many. 
And I think we're at this extraordinary time where we see uh, these incredible uh, scientific advances in the vaccines and the treatments. But we also know that the access to these uh, scientific technologies, the access to, to the types of treatments, uh, and the ways in which many of our policies play out also reflect the types of inequities that we see in society. And there's never been a better time, I think, to highlight them, to think how we can in science and medicine work to improve the health of all of our communities and to do it in a trusted way. Because the other theme in this pandemic is the amount of mistrust people have about science and medicine. And I think it's important for an, a really outstanding voice like JAMA and the JAMA Network uh, to play a role in, in helping to improve in this area. Can you identify one or two steps that you're really eager to take once you start the job that you think will, will move JAMA in the right direction? Yeah, I think one of the things that I'm most excited by is to think about the voices that we oftentimes don't hear in scientific publications. I'm really excited to uh, make sure that the entire process that leads to publication, that we really expand the number of voices at the table. I think this is about publishing the best science, but also putting the best science in context for the larger challenges that we face in actually making sure that a scientific discovery actually leads to improvements in health for, for all communities uh, in the US. As you've said, this is a problem across science, across medicine. And so how does the work you're describing at one scientific journal fit into the larger ecosystem that you're talking about here? Right. I think that this is just one uh, journal, but it is a journal with a very both uh, prominent voice and a broad reach. And you see that the larger scientific enterprise, which includes the funders of science, the people who conduct science, the communities who are involved and participate in science, uh, the ways in which science is translated into medicine, all of those have their own parts that they need to play in this process. But I think movement in any one of those also uh, moves the larger enterprise in the direction we'd like to see it going. And do you feel like the goals you're describing are reflected across the field? Or is everyone kind of working in silos right now, and some are doing it better and faster than others, and some are just not doing it at all? To be frank, I would say that uh, it is unfortunate, and I say this as a physician myself, that um, we we go into medicine because we want to uh, serve our patients, and it's sometimes harder for us to acknowledge that the same biases that we have and that we are shaped by also influences how we care for our patients. So I would say medicine and science probably has been slower to address some of these issues. I think acknowledging that these forces exist should not come as a surprise to anyone, but rather is the first step to trying to make sure that science and medicine is something that really is working for the betterment of improving health for all. Dr. Kirsten Bibbins-Domingo is the incoming editor-in-chief of JAMA. Thank you for speaking with us. Thank you. To honor Poetry Month, we're hearing from the four finalists to become the 2022 National Youth Poet Laureate. Today, we meet Elizabeth Schwartz, the Northeast Regional Ambassador. I go by Liz. And I am 17. I'm from New York City. I'm from Staten Island. This poem is titled, At Least. In my dreams, I am King Midas. Specter, sinner, saint. I don't want to be another spectator. I swallow sunbeams. Slick lips revel in the golden glut of bustling streets. Here, they've unclenched their fists. Let the cobblestones clatter to the ground. 
This is the type of city that burns its maps. A firework is a fickle attempt to bottle miracles, but can't we say we tried? Can't we say the mosaics here were beautiful? I wrote about my experience looking within my community and sort of finding something I was in awe of and something that I wanted to change. And so in Staten Island, it's not really known for, it's not the most popular borough. And it has this stereotype of being really monolithic and that's not something that I experienced, but I also knew that gentrification was a huge issue and witnessing how my parents were treated, navigating being a first-generation Russian Jewish American and a lot of my culture um, is in this poem too. So I wanted to, to write with hope. And that's why I talk about King Midas and the touch of gold. And instead of bulldozing the bodegas for the celery juice station or the karate dojo for the soul cycle, swap the school desks for the stage, keep the children's playground, keep the Russian store, keep the Perigis and Bonchiki, don't sanitize our roots. America promises alimony, but we've rescheduled the court date until our pavement becomes the paradise we deserve. I just love the feeling of being able to make someone question their beliefs or to make someone feel hopeful. And just by performing a three to five minute poem, that is such a powerful thing to do and so grounding. They say we should draw solid, draw straight, draw the first number that comes to mind, the gap between the pothole and the picket fence. In my dreams, I am King Midas, specter, sinner, saint. Someday what I touch will turn to gold. Together, we'll make these pavements paradise. Elizabeth Schwartz, a finalist for this year's National Youth Poet Laureate. This is NPR News. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by A Street Frames, master frame makers and museum-quality picture framers with their newest location in the SOA Arts District of Boston's South End, astreetframes.com. The Umbrella Stage Company, celebrating love with the musical comedy Head Over Heels with music by the Go-Go's, now through May 8th, theumbrellastage.org. And Innuendo, providing shading systems for businesses and homes. Their design team can help you find window treatments for light, heat, privacy, and glare issues. Innuendo Natick and Innuendo.com. <laughs> 